What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Sean Ryan, former Navy SEAL, CIA contractor, and the host of The Sean Ryan Show. In this conversation, we talk about his illustrious military career, his time as a contractor, lessons he learned both in the military and as a contractor that he now applies to the business world, and generally what it takes to be successful in the world that we live in. Also, Sean has built an amazing business and a great show that I highly suggest you go take a look at. We talk about why he does it, what exactly his experience with psychedelics was that unlocked a bunch of business success, and why you, as a listener or a viewer, should go and check out The Sean Ryan Show. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sean, and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Once you get done listening, jump on Twitter and let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, what you agreed with, and what you disagreed with. We love the feedback, and I consider it a gift. All right, let's get in this episode with Sean. I hope you guys enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Sean here with me. Uh, I thought a great place to start would be Navy SEALs are known for just incredible training programs and process. Uh, We produce some of the best warfighters in the world. But in some ways, the Navy SEAL methodology is also like an apprenticeship model where you spend time training, you get through kind of selection and, and all these. But then you go to a team and you're the new guy. And you very much uh, learn from the people who've been doing it longer. Talk a little bit about that experience and like, do you learn more in the training process or do you learn more on the team kind of just doing it and being thrown into the fire with people who are older, more experienced than you? That's a, you learn a lot in training, but you, you don't really learn how to be a SEAL in training. And so when you show up to the team, you hear all the rumors and, you know, oh, we're going to get the shit beat out of us or whatever. And for, for, actually, for me personally, that did not happen right off the bat. Mm-hmm. But uh, my, when I showed up, my platoon had a different methodology where they, they actually had it really bad. They showed up and there was a lot of kind of unnecessary hazing and knocking people around and stuff. And so they wanted to do it different. It was almost, I don't know if passive aggressive is the right word, but mm-hmm. when you when you get out of BUDS training and you get out of SQT and you show up to the team, you, you think you're on top of the world. You got your trident and <clears throat> you think, oh, yeah, I'm a SEAL. Little do you know, you know, you're, you know about this much of what it takes to go to combat uh, with a SEAL platoon. And so what the, what, when I showed up, my platoon, they kind of waited for that ego to develop mm-hmm. and then they shut it down real fast. But, <clears throat> but as far as learning... Um, and, and I think they're a lot better about it today. Learning is when you show up to the team, you got kind of two types of, two types of seals. When I was in, you got the guys that are just, they're just going to be an asshole to you no matter Mm -hmm. what, you know, and if you mess up, then you're going to hear about it and they don't really correct you. And then you have the guys who are the superstars Mm -hmm. and they'll tune you up and then they'll take you to the side and say, look, this is how we need to things to be done and this is a better way to do it and this is a better way to integrate into the team or a better way to clear that room and and for some reason those guys always wind up being the rock star operators you know that that 
that really know their shit, the guys that can put their ego aside and, and, and help help the FNGs. Yeah. You know? The business world has become obsessed with the military in general, uh, but I think SEALs in recent years have been celebratized and kind of plastered across uh, the media. And obviously there's uh, a number of stories of both uh, heroic actions, but also just results uh, that, that have become quite popular. And I think the reason why so many people in the business world are obsessed with this is because there's the aspects of leadership and teamwork and things that run across all organizations. But the difference is in the military, if somebody screws up, like it's literally life or death. Right. And so the stakes are higher and, and, and you need that cohesiveness. When you were operating in the SEAL teams and you're talking about these kind of superstars, it sounds like there was like this knowledge transfer where, yes, they, they would be assholes. They would kind of hold you accountable, but they would still be willing to teach. How important was it that your peers were also teaching versus if it had come top down and it had been uh, maybe officers or people kind of back at uh, um, you know some sort of headquarters uh, unit or something like that trying to tell you what to do? Is it important that it was like the peers rather than more maybe more um, kind of the superiors? Or do you think that it was just, no, if you got the knowledge, it would have had the same impact? Well, that's a, that's a great question, but it's not 100% relevant because the – officers and and the the upper head shed a lot of times they don't have the skills that the actual guys on running the team are mm -hmm. or, or or the ground guys you know so let's like an officer most officers don't go to sniper school most officers don't go to communication school most officers don't go to breaching school their whole focus is to learn how to lead you know and so what they do is they allow all the guys who are the resident expert in their specific genre to teach the new guys, you know, their skill set. So they'll take a breacher. A breacher is a guy who is uh, he blows doors up. Mm -hmm. he, he's a, a master of entry. And so they'll take the top breachers and they'll run the new guys through, you know, through a, a a basic breaching course to get them, you know, kind of up to speed. And the snipers, you know, will run guys who haven't been through sniper school through a basic sniper course, stalking, shot placement, all that kind of stuff. Same with comm, same with diving, same with everything. And so when you get to a SEAL team, you have your head shed and they're in charge, but they're really good at disseminating. Like, look, you need to go and talk to Anthony, who, you know, is the best diver in the platoon and he's going to score you away with your gear and all that kind of stuff. And then you need to go talk to Sean, you know, the, the breacher, and you need to go talk to this guy, the, the, the assaulter. And, and so that's kind of, does that answer your question? It, it, it does. And one of the things that immediately jumps to mind is uh, there's a lot of debate around specialization versus uh, kind of a generalist. And uh, people debate this in terms of building their own careers, uh, regardless of the industry. People debate this with their kids, right? Should you start them out super specialized in maybe a sport versus allow them to play a bunch of different sports to figure out what they like? The SEALs seem to be unique in that you do have a specialization, but you have to be kind of a master uh, of many other genres or, or skill sets as well because you need to have that well-roundedness because on the battlefield, it's not like, hey, you only get to do comms. You don't have to shoot today, mm -hmm. right? Is, is that kind of a fair characterization? It is. <clears throat> However, that specialization can change. So SEAL teams go in cycles. So when I was in, it was a about a two-year cycle. It was a year and a half of training, workups, going to schools, getting specialized and stuff, and then it's a six-month deployment. So in that two years, your specialization, and, and at the beginning of that is when you can do 
when you can go into a new specialization. So you have about six months where you can go to sniper school, breacher school, comm school, uh, free fall school, it, all kinds of schools, right? Well, if you go to one of the main ones, which would be like one of the ones that I listed, then that's your field of expertise for that two-year cycle or until you're placed into, if I go through sniper school, you know, at the beginning of that cycle, beginning of the next cycle, I might say, hey, look, I want to I want to go to breacher school. Mm -hmm. And then for that cycle, you might be the lead breacher, mm -hmm. you know, and then it all depends on how many cycles you're doing and what you want to do. A really good seal will develop all of his skill sets. Mm -hmm. And as you're going through uh, these different schools uh, in the last 20 years, you pretty much knew, hey, there's a high likelihood that you're going to go to war, right? Mm -hmm. I, I've talked to a lot of people who were in the military pre 9-11 and they were like, yeah, we went to schools. It was cool. We kind of were screwing around, um, didn't really know what else to do with my life. But like the threat of war was not nearly as uh, obvious and uh, people would get deployed. But they'd go to Kosovo or somewhere where, you know, yes, technically you're forward, but it's, it's somewhat peacetime, uh, operations. Did that change the way that SEALs trained, thought about going to different schools, uh, or kind of the day-to-day -day operations when not deployed, knowing that, uh, you know, at a moment's notice you could be deployed and, and kind of put forward into, uh, some of the most ferocious battles, uh, that we now are starting to learn about? I can only speak from my own experience, you know, and when I, by the time I got to SEAL training buds, it was already post 9-11. So mm -hmm. I saw a little bit of that transition by the time I showed up to the team, which <clears throat> it definitely, I could tell that there was a transition in process, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I, I could see the old mindset, especially of the, the, the older SEALs and the more seasoned mm -hmm. SEALs at the time. And then the guys that were coming back from early deployments early on in the war. Mm -hmm. And when those meshed, it was it was it was an interesting time to be in because you saw guys who had been in for 15, 20 years, you know, who hadn't been to a con to a real war zone. Mm -hmm. And then you got guys that are like me, uh, a new guy coming back after one deployment or two deployments, and they have already been to Iraq, Afghanistan, maybe Pakistan, maybe more. And so what that did at the beginning is it created a lot of, uh, it created a lot of jealousy. Yeah. You know, because I mean, I, you can figure it out. You got a guy who just came in, who went and did the job that the guy that's been in for 20 years has been trying to do. And so that created a lot of jealousy for a long time. And it took probably a good five, six years, I'm estimating to kind of, to kind of switch that mindset. Cause the mm -hmm. old mindset was, was, and it still is to this, some extent was work hard, play hard. And we work really hard and we play even harder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that mindset kind of started to switch, you know, especially when you started seeing um, more and more guys getting killed out there, it becomes, you know, it, it brings a realness to the, to the entire community when that kind of stuff starts happening. Yeah. You know, so, so, so the training environment did change. The focus would be, it went from let's hurry up and get this shit done so we can go to the bar to let's not hurry up and get this shit done. Let's get this shit right because we're going to mm -hmm. be doing this in two months overseas. 
Yeah. What, um, I was deployed to Iraq uh, for uh, about a year. And uh, in the big army, there was two things that I think surprised me in that experience uh, among many, but two that really stuck out. The first was uh, everyone has this big buildup to going to war. And, and now the big army is going to do very different types of operations than uh, the SEALs were. Uh, but once you kind of see it and you feel it and you're in it, you're not exactly looking for a fight every day, yeah. right? There was this element of like, okay, cool. Like this shit's real. Um, and uh, if we have to, we'll fight. But uh, it's not like we want to go and pick fights uh, just for the hell of it because this is real, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that was one. And then two was as kind of a, a, a second component of that, um, I happened to be in a platoon where uh, the very first engagement that we were in, uh, the platoon leader was not there. And so everyone is getting combat action badges and kind of all these, like, I think in the military, you don't really give a shit about, but, uh, from the outside, they seem important. And so through the rest of the deployment, uh, the platoon leaders seem to make decisions that I'm not going to say put people at risk intentionally, but definitely felt like, Hey, he wouldn't be upset if, uh, he was able to be in an environment where he could get some of these awards and, and things like that. And so like, maybe that was a one-off case and it was just like human dynamics, but maybe not. And so like, how did the SEALs think about this? Is it something where most of the people while deployed were like, let's go get in firefights every night. And like, you know, I'm, I live for this. Or was it more of like, let's go do our job. And if we have to do that, you know, we're prepared to do it, but it's not necessarily something we're seeking out. Like how, how, what was kind of the, maybe like the psyche of the SEALs going on these missions? For me, and I would say probably 90% of the SEAL teams it's let's go get in a gunfight. Okay. Let's go, <laughs> let's go do what we came here to do. Let's, let's, we have all this training, you know, it's a mm -hmm. it buds is six months. Usually it takes guys a year to get through. Then you go to jump school. Then you go to SQT. Now I think the guys are going to some more schools. Then you show up to your team and you do a year and a half workup and then you finally deploy. So add all that time up and then you finally get a chance. It's like, it's like a uh, MLB player showing mm -hmm. up on the, on the, on the field for the first time. It's like, shit, here we are. Yeah. Let's I need it. I need at bats. Yeah. And <laughs> put uh, me in coach. And uh, now guys that have been around longer, guys that have seen shit, guys that have that experience, they have a different mindset. Mm -hmm. And that, that is another thing at the very beginning. Um, I was, I was war hungry. I mm -hmm. really wanted to kick some ass. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of deaths. I, um, we went in to Afghanistan right after Red Wings happened. That was the biggest loss in the SEAL teams at the time. And we weren't doing a whole lot, and it was it was extremely frustrating for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for those that don't know, Red Wings was uh, the Operation Marcus Luttrell, Lone Survivor. Yep. Um, and I think it ended up being about 20 Navy SEALs were, uh, were killed during that three- or four-day period. And so you went in right after. Yep. And it was very risk-adverse. Mm -hmm. So we had all these targets – that we could have gone and hit, but we weren't doing it. And it created this, it, 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 it really demoralized, um, the platoon. And <clears throat> so does that answer it? Yeah. You know, we it, really wanted, we wanted to fight. And, and so it almost feels like when you're talking about this demoralization, uh, you know, the targets are there, you have the Intel, we know where they are. We have the skill set to go and, and capture them, kill them, do, do whatever is asked of us. Uh, but it's frustration that you're not getting the green light to go do it. And it's, you're kind of sitting there without being able to use the skill set. Let me, yeah, let me try to paint this a little clearer for you. So I went to first or second deployment, I'm sorry, to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. We show up, 
first thing we do is an intel brief. In that intel brief is video footage of the guys that went down in the helos that went to um, QRF, Quick Reactionary Force, to the guys on the ground and mm-hmm. the sniper hide, Marcus, Axelson, uh, Dietz. One of the first things I saw was a fighter, a foreign fighter, holding up Danny Dietz's ID, trying to figure out how to turn his night vision on, how to turn his laser on. They're ripping his clothes off, and you could see the fresh tattoo that was just tattooed on Danny's ribs. Mm-hmm. And then we don't do anything, mm-hmm. you know? And, and the only question you're in your head is, why the fuck aren't we doing anything? Yeah. Yet? Who is that guy? Yeah. And and then you see him collecting all the other rifles and going through the helo crash and and getting everything they can, just scavenging mm-hmm. off of our guys' dead bodies. Mm-hmm. And so that demoralized us, um, guys that hadn't been out yet. Let's fast forward. Then we go to Iraq, and we're doing a, just a lot of sniper stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of... We killed a lot of bad guys that were trying to do harm, especially the infantry army that were running convoys. And it was just op after op of taking care of guys that were placing roadside bombs. Well, then it started once you get it, you know, and you get the taste, then you start you start understanding, you know, hey, maybe this isn't worth going out for. You know, we're not. Yeah, there's a bunch of shitheads over here, but maybe we're waiting for the big one, mm-hmm. you know. And if we go take care of all these shitheads, then the big guy's not going to come out. Mm-hmm. And so you learn to develop patience and and you start to begin to understand, you know, why things maybe don't move as fast as as you want them to. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's uh, – you can take that learning and apply it across – various industries and organizations, like the young person who shows up and is like, let's just go build everything right in business. And then somebody says, well, hold on, <laughs> there's resources, there's budget, <laughs> there's yep. strategy, there, there's other components that you may or may not see. Um, when did you realize that you were maybe gaining the experience or the patience or some of the discipline that the older guys had? Was it just reps? So literally just being on combat uh, deployments and, and going on these operations and eventually you just pick it up? Did somebody like sit you down and say, Hey, here's why this is the way it is. And so, you know, once you know, have that knowledge, then, then you look at it differently. What, what changed? Uh, you know, I'm kind of a slow learner. <laughs> so uh, I actually left the SEAL teams and I didn't I didn't really pick up that bigger picture uh, until I got into CIA. Mm-hmm. And then I started to realize, hey, there is a lot bigger of a picture here than Sean being able to go out and kick some ass every night. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it it was probably a good four or five years into my agency career Mm -hmm. uh, that I finally started picking that up. And the only reason I was able to pick that up is because the agency has their hands at so many different things. You start to build the bigger picture yourself in your own head. And it's okay. I see how all this shit is all connected throughout Mm -hmm. the entire battle space. I see how, how we're utilizing the SEAL teams and how we're utilizing the green berets and Delta and team six and, 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 assets that you're running and, and, and all these things, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and, and that's when you start to understand, okay, patient, we, we got to be patient because we want to get number one. Mm -hmm. We don't want to get, you know, the 
minions. Yeah. I mean, it's very similar if, if you've ever talked to like the DEA or uh, police officers, right? Like they'll go do street drug buys because they want to figure out who this person is. They pick them up and say, hey, where do you get your drugs from? And they kind of work their way up the organization and eventually they try to get the leader, right? And, yeah. and we saw this. You can go look in the tri-state area with the mafia and kind of how they pinned those guys. Military is very similar. Um, and I think what was fascinating to me uh, was we weren't being given operations to go anywhere near big guys or anything like that. Um, but there was names that were known. There was, you know, kind of almost myth mythical figures to some degree, right? As to, oh, we don't go over here because A, B, or C reason, that's so-and-so's, you know, kind of domain. And you're like, well, if we know that dude's name, yeah. <laughs> right? You're telling me that the, the might and power of the United States military can't figure out where the fuck that guy is, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, and, and so it was like very weird to some degree. Um, but I do think that your point about like once you got exposed to more, you, you learned. Um, when you left the SEALs, you didn't expect to go to the CIA. You no. went and, if I remember correctly, uh, wanted to go into like more business and, and kind of the investment world. Yeah, I read uh, I read Donald Trump's book, uh, <laughs> The Apprentice. Was it the no? Uh, was the it art the, of the how deal. to get rich? How that to get was, rich. It okay. was how to get rich. I picked it up and actually I picked it up in Cuba, at Guantanamo Bay, and I read the whole thing in like two days, and I was like. Fucking hey, man, I'm going to go get rich. <laughs> and, uh, and they're like, well, how are you going to do that? And I was like, I'm going to sell my fucking condo, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to use that money to start flipping houses, and I'm going to become a real estate agent. And then that turned into an, a whole disaster. How, how <laughs> long did you last doing that? Oh, man. Prob I sold one house to my ex-girlfriend's mother for about $150,000 Success. And, yeah. And, uh, and so pretty, a very small commission. And, uh, I, I realized a lot of things very fast. I'm horrible at dealing with people, mm -hmm. especially coming, I mean, right out of Afghanistan or right out of Iraq into mm -hmm. being a realtor. I have no patience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would ride around and print off. This is what back in 2007, 2006 ish. I would print off like 50 pages of MapQuest because I was too broke to buy a TomTom. Do you know what a TomTom <laughs> yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would hand it to the client, and then I would get pissed off because they don't know how to read a map. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, anyways, I just realized I was like, you know, this isn't this is a this is not my skill set. Yeah, dealing with people, selling, this isn't my skill set. And so, so I went into a fire academy. Got it. And. Um you eventually end up at the CIA. Uh, I, I think I've heard you talk previously that a friend basically was like, hey, you know, are you looking for work? Send me a resume and, and I'll, uh, uh, I'll see what I can do. But it sounds like maybe you didn't know that it was the CIA, what you would be doing. Like there's almost like kind of a, a curtain and until you're behind the curtain, you don't really know what's going on. Is that a fair Yeah, way? they don't really tell you. Okay. And um, so the way it was, was I'd, I left being a realtor <laughs> obviously. And I was in the fire Academy. That wasn't really going great. It was, you're not going to get hired for two years. And me, you know, I'm just going to say it. I'm a white male, mm -hmm. a white straight male. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not high on the priority list. Right. Okay. So, <clears throat> um, so they told me, they're like, look, it's going to be two years at least before you even think about getting in. Plus you have all the family ties within the fire service as well. Got it. You know? And so, they need to entertain all of that and you know where I'm going. And um, so 
you know, I'm an adult at this point. Obviously, I have bills to pay. And I'm like, well, this shit, this isn't going to work. I don't have two years to mm -hmm. wait, you know, for a, for a firefighter salary. Just so happened my buddy called me and um, he was, hey, I'm working for Blackwater at the time. And I was like, no, I don't want to do, I don't want to work at Blackwater. Why I, not? Well, it, Blackwater had contractors in general had a reputation mm -hmm. back then. And uh, some of that reputation is true. A lot of the Blackwater stuff wasn't true. That was other companies. Mm -hmm. They were doing things they shouldn't have done, saying that they were Blackwater when they weren't. Anyways, um, long story short, the contracting requirements, I didn't realize there were different sections. So if you look at Blackwater, Blackwater is an umbrella company, but they also, they have the State Department contract. Mm -hmm. They have the CIA contract. They have all kinds of contracts. Maybe they have the NSA contract. Maybe they have the DEA contract. There's a ton of contracts. Mm -hmm. There's a mail contract to get mm -hmm. mail and uh, delivered. And I didn't realize that. So then they take all the resumes that they get and they put different qualified guys into different buckets. Just so happens most of the guys coming from special operations get put into the CIA bucket, but they can't know that. Anyways, I didn't think I was going to be working with the type of people who I was used to working with in the SEAL teams, and I didn't – I wasn't in, – in, in contractors at the time were – they had the reputation of being bloodthirsty. Mm -hmm. And, um, and and for those that don't have the context, one of the things that uh, ends up being, I think, a challenge for the contractors, especially at that time, uh, is if you're bloodthirsty but you're not actually with the support of the military, as we saw a couple of times, you kind of out on an island on your own. Mm -hmm. It could almost be more dangerous than if you had the full, you know, support and firepower of the, you know, the military where you could call QRF or you could call some of these organizations uh, – you may not have the best equipment. Like th there was a, a lot of things, especially early on that changed over time, but depending on when you were looking at it, uh, also it could have just been more dangerous than even being a seal. Yeah, definitely. Um, what, what you had was you, because the contracts were so wide, mm -hmm. right. And I didn't realize this when I was in the teams co-located with these guys, uh, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan is, I mean, I, w I would be in the chow line or something and I'd talk to somebody and be like, Oh, how did you get to work here? How did you get into contracting? Oh, I was a Bank of America security guard last week. Jesus. And I'm like, really? You're <laughs> and now you're here. You know? <laughs> and uh, you are not going to have my yeah. back. <laughs> I don't think I want to be a contractor when I leave this gig. <laughs> and uh, well, anyways, my friend had told me, he's like, look, it's not like what you're thinking. He's mm -hmm. like, it's not what we saw overseas. There's a bigger picture here. And he's like, everybody on this side of the house is like us or better than us. I think you might want to give me a resume. It pays extremely well, and it's a great gig to be on. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said, all right, here it is. I mean, I had an idea. I was like, all right, it's got to be a three-letter agency contract mm -hmm. or at least attached to them. And, yeah, so that's – so I gave my resume. I didn't hear anything the first – the first correspondence I got was, we need a full body shot of you to make sure I'm not a fat ass. I didn't know that at the time. No way. Yeah. And and I was like- Naked well, or clothed? No, no, no. no. Clothed? Clothed. Right. clothed. <laughs> 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 we need, a, we need a full frontal with- yeah. uh, Government <laughs> was running OnlyFans before- uh, I thought this was just a military contract. <laughs> but uh, but um, 
but yeah, so I was like, all right, well, that's kind of weird. So I sent it in and, and then I later found out, Hey, we, we get a lot of, a lot of guys let themselves go when they get out and we don't want that. And so that's what that was. It's and amazing. People think it's so sophisticated, but it's like, yeah. just as a picture, right? <laughs> yes. Like we're going to get like, uh, 80% of people filtered out that are just fat. Yep. Right. And you can't be fat in this job, whether people like that or not, like you got to be able to be physically fit to do the job. Yep. So, and they've already done all the other vetting, you mm-hmm. know, or not most of it. They've asked around, they've got opinions, your name mm-hmm. might be in a wall that, but it's really small community. So they, they already kind of know at least a little bit about who you are Mm -hmm. as an operator before, before you have to give the full frontal, you know? (laughs) And, uh, and then I didn't hear anything for a long time again after that and, uh, filled out some paperwork for a new security clearance. And then, I mean, I thought it was just done. And then I got, I got a, you know, Hey, we need you here on this date. This is what you're bringing. Who says that? Like, is, is it your friend? Is it like a, somebody's like, hey, I work for the CIA. I need you to come here. No, because this was Blackwater. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to work for Blackwater. They were basically the, the what would you call it, subcontractor. Mm-hmm. The agency's like, I need this many guys. Blackwater's like, we'll find them. They work for us, and we'll give them to you. Yep. You know, and there are only four allotted for the the agency contract, which is called uh, special programs at the time or something like that. And so it was an email and it just came from a regular Gmail account. You know, it wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't like Anthony at CIA.gov. Hey, yeah. show up here or Eric Prince at blackwater.com. It was whatever Joel at Gmail. gmail.com, you know, and it's like, who the hell is Joel? At? All right. Well, you know, Here's your plane tickets. We'll see you here. And uh, and that's 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 pretty much how that. This episode is brought to you by Valor, which represents what's next in the digital economy. They provide simplified trusted access in crypto, decentralized finance, and Web3 investment opportunities. Institutions and investors can gain diversified, secure, compliant, and easily tradable access to a diversified set of industry-leading equity products and protocols, all through a single stock purchase on a regulated exchange. They currently are listed in the U.S. under the DEFTF stock ticker and on the Canadian NEO exchange under DEFI. For more information or to subscribe to receive company updates and financial information, visit their website at valor.com. That's V-A-L-O-U-R.com. This episode is brought to you by Masari. Your days of spending hours scouring the internet for quality crypto insights are over. Masari is your one-stop shop for all your crypto data and research needs. With Masari Pro, you gain access to exclusive industry-leading long-form daily research reports, daily crypto news, advanced asset screeners, and curated sets of charts and protocol metrics. You can try Masari Pro today, and listeners of this podcast will get 25% off the Masari Pro membership by visiting www.masari.io backslash pro and entering promo code POMP. Again, that's masari.io backslash pro and use promo code POMP. Navigate the market with confidence with Masari Pro. It's kind of how the military works, right? Uh, Obviously, once you get into the contracting world and and some of the agencies, um, I think people would like to think they're more sophisticated. But in the military, people basically like, okay, uh, here's your clothes, here's your equipment, and uh, get on this plane. We're going to take you somewhere, and then you're going to do what we tell you to do, and then like you're going to come back. Okay. Yep. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So like, uh, there's some, I guess, familiarity with that. When you get there, is it? like academic exercises? Cause, cause is it like a tryout or is it it's basically a tryout? Like, okay. It's a, it's a, tri- they're not there to teach you. 
they're there to vet you. So okay. it's, it's a tryout, a month-long tryout. And so you show up, and the first thing they do is run you through uh, a physical test. Mm-hmm. You know, just run push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, you know. I think that's – I think that uh, body drag, mm-hmm. drag a 180-pound dummy so many – so many yards. Um, Did you find it difficult or it was like a pretty basic? I mean, it's pretty basic. Yeah. You know, again, it's just, can this guy move? Is he let himself go? Is he injured? You know, shit mm-hmm. like that. It's, I mean, it'll get you breathing. It'll get a sweat going, but it's nothing too excruciating. Mm-hmm. And uh, which actually, to be honest with you, a lot of guys don't make it mm-hmm. through that, uh, which is sad. But like I said, a lot of guys let themselves go. So then after that, you start getting into a shooting package <clears throat> and um, you run that shooting package. You just run drills, 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 drills. And they don't tell you, at least on this one, they didn't tell you times. They don't tell you, they tell you how many shots and where to line up and do it as best and as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So it's like, shit, I don't, you know, no slap have, on the back. No yeah, good job. No, no, nothing. No. Well, I mean, like, how fast do I need to be? You know, and you know, because you shoot. It sounds like you shoot. So, I mean, you know, the wheels fall off at a certain level yes. there of, of speed, and so you just do the best you can. And guys, that's really where guys start disappearing. There's two quals that I can't get into. There's a there's a whole series of pistol quals. There's a whole series of rifle quals. There's two, one pistol call and one rifle call in particular that get probably 75% or more of the guys. Um, they don't make it. Yeah. You know? and, and is it a, a difficulty of like what it, they're being asked to do or is it the unknown? And so guys may not try as hard or go as fast or, or they like almost succumb to the uncertainty more so than the actual uh, skill they're being asked to uh, uh, kind of display. I mean, it's all of it. It's a difficult yeah. call and uh, you're coming, you're coming from concealed and shooting a certain amount of rounds mm-hmm. in a very short, uh, few amount of seconds. Mm-hmm. And then, um, the rifle one is actually a two minute long qualification, wow. but you only fire, I think, eight rounds okay. and a lot of moving around and stuff. But <clears throat> so you're now like, I, I think the best way to describe this to people listening or watching is like, uh, this is now moved from like novice. Hey, can you shoot to, uh, are you an elite operator yes. who, who we can put in certain environments and like, you've got a higher probability of succeeding than, than most. Yes. Okay. We, we have an expectation and you're going to meet the expectation mm-hmm. or you're not, but go, just rewind it a little bit. So when you do that, you know, you're shooting for a job that's going to pay you more money than you've ever been paid in your entire life. You know, so there's that. Yep. Then there's, you know, you're already at an elite level and everybody hates to fail, mm-hmm. you know, especially in front of their peers, especially when it's, you know, Green Berets, Delta guys, SEALs, uh, you know, MARSOC guys, mm-hmm. Force Reconnaissance guys, Paraforce PJs. It's all, it's competitive, mm-hmm. you know. And so if you're the SEAL that failed the fucking qual, shame on you. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have that and then you have the difficulty of the actual qualification as mm-hmm. well. And do you yet know as you're going through this what's on the other side? Like are you far enough into the process now where you know, hey, this is CIA, this is the types of things that uh I would be going and doing? Uh or is it still like just do this, we're vetting you and we'll tell you later, you know, it's, what your job's going to be. It's very no talking. 
And okay. um, yeah, so you don't know <laughs> until you're until you've completed it successfully. And um, looking after all my interviews that I've done, it I think that they tried to model it maybe a little bit off of uh, what Delta what Delta guys yep. go through. And um, and so yeah, it's very it's very professional. It's very minimal conversation. It's very direct conversation or instruction. And it's just don't talk back. Just do what you're asked to do. Mm-hmm. Don't try to get a bunch of attention. You know, just just show up, perform, and go home. Yeah. For uh, for those who haven't read, there's a book, Masters of Chaos, that I think really kind of outlines uh, the qualification course and a lot of the uh, uh, Green Beret process. Uh, and what I think is so interesting about that is like there's a period that's very regimented, which is uh, we are going to instruct you, we are going to vet you, we are going to do all this. There's usually almost no certainty. So let's go for a run. We're running for a mile. We're running for 10. Yeah. Let's go for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> Again, uh, have this be here at this time, and uh, we'll tell you then at that point what you're going to do. Um, but then there's a entire part of the vetting process, uh, the Robin Sage event, uh, where it's very much, hey, this is the objective, this is the goal, and it's towards the end. And so it's interesting that that training uh, is regimented with uncertainty and then there's basically certainty in the objective at the end but there's not a lot of regimented uh instruction in terms of how to accomplish the objective yeah and so they almost hit both sides is that similar to the the vetting uh, it is at the cia okay especially in the next portion so then you get through the shoot walls mm-hmm. and if you get to, through the shoot walls then you go to basically tactics which is uh driving then you do a lot of uh, CQB, which is clearing houses, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and that the driving doesn't really get anybody. CQB, excuse me, it does start to get a lot of people. And it's tough because, once again, same thing. You're shooting for a job. You're being critiqued by people that you don't know. Um, you don't even know if they're, you know, if it's if they're subjective to you know, and, and then on top of that, you're working with guys that you've not only not worked with, but are, that are from different units that do it a different way. Mm -hmm. And so then in that portion, it's how does this guy think on his feet? Can he process fast by entering a room and not be shooting innocents and, and unknowns and, and killing hostages and all that? And how does he, how does he adapt how do these guys adapt working with each other Interesting. who do it completely different ways? Mm-hmm. And um, so that gets a lot of guys and, and that gets a lot of egos brought out too, because everybody thinks their way is the fucking best, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we all know there's a thousand different ways to skin a cat, you know, pick one and, and, and go with it and, mm-hmm. and be able to operate at the level of your, you know, the guy that you're entering the room with or your team. So when you're talking about kind of uh, different units having different styles, uh, the Navy SEALs may do it one way, uh, Green Berets do it another, right? You kind of go down the line. Um, What is that like? So you're like, okay, we're going to go clear this house. Uh, For those that uh, may not know some of the details, um, there may be specific tactics around, hey, when we enter the door, if the door opens a certain way, I go left, I go right, I button hook, I I clear a certain way, I uh, I am able to cover people a certain way. Is there a discussion before you do it or is it more so uh kicking the door and let's not shoot each other <laughs> kicking the door let's not shoot each other let's not shoot any innocents mm-hmm. and um and and you don't know what you're walking into so mm-hmm. they had 
here's another scenario. So then you get through that, mm-hmm. and then at the end, they really tie it all together. And um, one of the drills was they put a hood over your head. <laughs> put it. They give you a rifle or a pistol. You don't know if it's loaded. You don't know if, if it's unloaded. You don't know if it's jammed. You just have this. If they put a hood on your head, then they give you a weapon, you know, and you don't know what condition the weapon's in. And then there's all these role player. It's simunition rounds, mm-hmm. which is basically kind of like high Paint speed paintball. And um, so they have all these role players in there. And you lift the hood up, and it it might be a bunch of bad look, dudes that look bad that are coming at you, but they're not really coming at you. And a lot of guys will get amped up, and they they'll shoot. Mm-hmm. You're done. Get out. You know you can't handle it. And then the next, but you'll run through like. I don't know, f- three to five iterations, I think. Is that how quick the feedback loop is? So, like, literally, you've got the bag on your head, you're standing there, you got a gun, they pull it up, and in the next 30 seconds, if you do something stupid or they deem out of bounds, literally on the spot, they say, you're done, get out? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. People get pissed? Or it's not the environment? They get upset, but it's yeah. not really, I mean, it's just, you're just, I mean, if you fail, I mean, it's that, it's, it's, it's humiliating, yeah. you know, and, uh, and, and there's a lot of shame. I didn't see anybody get pissed. I saw guys get pissed afterwards and try to argue it, you know, mm-hmm. but in the moment like that, no. Nah. And if you argue, if you, if you're like, no, I didn't do that, then you're out. Yep. You know, there is no, like I said, there's no conversation. A lot of times if you, if you do something wrong, you don't even know what you did wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just unsatisfactory back of the line. So when that hood comes up, what are, what are kind of some of the things that I think maybe you in hindsight realize they're looking for? Is it the ability to control your emotions? Is it the ability to have uh, accuracy in shooting? Is it, Hey, did he check the weapon to even know if it's loaded or not before anything? Like what are some of the things that maybe in hindsight are obvious that they would be looking for? All of the above. I think the biggest, the biggest thing that they're doing is they're, they are dumping a tremendous amount of stress on you and they want to see that you can keep a level head, mm. you know? And so they want to see when that hood comes up, you be able to process everything that's happening and, 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 and perform the scenario. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that, that could be anything from rescuing, rescuing a hostage. Cause as soon as that hood comes up, you're in scenario. Mm-hmm. And so that could be res- rescuing a hostage. That could be there's nobody to shoot here. That could be everybody's a bad guy. That could be a fist fight. One time I had the hood pulled up. The hood didn't even come all the way up and just get punched in the face, you know, right right <laughs> off the bat. And so in the next <laughs> thing, you know, I'm on the ground. And, you know, did you hold on to your weapon when you got smacked? Or did it come flying out of your hand? I mean, a lot of just all those things. Yeah. And so... But I think the number one thing there that gets guys is they get too amped up. They can't handle the stress. And then you got a guy who's, he runs at you and might stop and he doesn't have a weapon and some guys will shoot him, you know? And it's like, well, he was running at me. Well, did he have a weapon? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, no, he didn't. Well, maybe he was running because he was trying to get out of the room because you scared the shit out of him because you had a weapon mm-hmm. and you just killed an innocent. You know, mm-hmm. and and so that's that's kind of what you're highlighting here um, is something I think is counterintuitive for a lot of people. So uh, 
in the special operations community in general, uh, there are people who are 6'5", 280 pounds, and look what you would expect to be a SEAL or, or whatever. Uh, but I think uh, I've read the average height and weight is like 5'10", 180 pounds. These are people who uh, generally don't look like what you would think the Navy SEALs look like in, in, in terms of uh, at least the way they're portrayed in the movies. Now, I think Marcus Luttrell six 6'5", so like th- there's outliers <laughs> for sure. Um, but also uh, not only in what I'd consider like the physical uh, metrics, but also I think a lot of people would expect SEALs or other special operators to um, – be bloodthirsty, to be high adrenaline, to be uh, egotistical and arrogant and uh, walk into a room and think, yeah, there's 15 guys in here, but I'm going to knock every single one of these dudes out and uh, I'm a badass. But you're highlighting that actually they may be looking for somebody who uh, isn't 6'5 and you know 280 uh, with, with muscles bulging out of their shirt. They may be looking for somebody who actually has more emotional control than just the, the hard charger. And so did you ever kind of put it together and understand like maybe why they're doing that? Oh, definitely. Okay. Absolutely. What is kind of in hindsight, what what do you think is like the big takeaways there? I mean, everything that they're looking, everything that they're looking for just are just, they don't care what you look like. They don't, I mean, obviously you have to have a certain physical standard, but all they want to see, it sounds simple, but it's not, is guys that can perform and analyze situations under extremely high stress Mm -hmm. without freaking out, without curling up in a ball and going in the corner you know, they just want to see people that can keep their head on straight and actually think themselves out of a situation, no matter how bad it is. So once you get through um, the vetting process, is there then a training process on top of uh, kind of the training you'd received as a SEAL? Or is it pretty much you've met the standard, we know you can do this job, here's an operation, go. Later on, uh, there could be training. There's different schools you can go to. Uh, once you're in, but that portion, it's, you got the ominous dominus, welcome to CIA, go to work. Okay. You know, and then when you get in, when you go to your, uh, your, when you go on your deployment, that's when you start getting trained by your team. It's kind of like, kind of similar to the SEAL teams where Mm -hmm. you show up, you think you know everything, you realize you don't know shit, and then the team schools you up on everything you need to know. With that being said, it's working for the agency, it's complete, it's just totally different vibe than working at the SEAL teams. In in what way? um, I mean, it's more of a, you're not going to get hazed. You know, it's more of a gentleman's, (laughs) it would be more of a gentleman's course. Yeah. Okay. And um, then that, and it's just, it's a lot more, you have to be a lot more politically correct. You have to worry Mm. about people's feelings. You can't just jump somebody's ass because they fucked up. You have to actually, you know, go through steps and, and, which is nobody coming from special operations is used to that. So that's a challenge in, its own, in itself. But getting over there, the first thing you're going to do uh, when you get to any location so the training never ends is figure out where the hell you're working. So mm-hmm. they give you a map. Mine was Kabul, uh, Afghanistan. That was my first deployment with them. And it was, here's a map of Kabul. You need to know every road on this map, starting with the major routes then you need to know all the back roads you need to know how to get to all these venues which hundreds of venues and you got two weeks to learn it and then you're operational so you have the map they tell you you need to do this 
do you get in like a car and you drive around and like figure it out? Do you sit down uh, with a big cup of coffee and just like start reading the map? Like how do you get that amount of uh, detail and information into your brain with high information retention in such a short period of time? Like what is that process like? It is, it depends, you know, where you're at, how big the location is. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to a small, a very small location, you're not, I'll just tell you what I did. So I took the map and I just traced the routes over and over. And you got to know the names because when you do this, they want you to be able to navigate without a GPS, without a map, without, they want to be able to blindfold you, put you somewhere and be like, all right, this is where I'm at. Take us back home, mm-hmm. you know, without anything. And um, so what I did is I took the map and I would just trace all the the main routes over and over and over until I had that image ingrained Mm -hmm. literally at the front of my brain and then um while i was and then after that then i would have a mentor somebody would be assigned to me and they'd be like hey take sean out show him a little show him the 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 main routes you know a couple times a day and because that's your only job is to learn so you do that and then as more new guys start trickling in then it's hey sean knows a little bit about the city Anthony just got here yesterday. Take him out. You guys go out. It is. Here's keys. Don't burn the vehicle, meaning don't get compromised. Don't have, you know, don't be out there creating a scene. We don't want the vehicles to get burned, but you need to learn the city. Go drive the city. And so me and you would become basically best friends for Mm -hmm. two weeks. That's all we're doing is just navigating, navigating every little section of the city. So then we'd start breaking down. Once we know the the main routes, then we break down sections of the city, and you know every single section. Then they give you a, a test. We started the conversation around like the apprenticeship model of the SEALs. Very similar here. You're talking about essentially apprenticeship for two weeks where, hey, this person knows maybe a little bit more than I do. They're going to offload that information to me. Uh, when military units switch out, they do left seat, right seat type stuff where uh, they kind of slowly work in more and more of a unit into uh, the, the various convoys and operations. And then eventually there's a full handoff and then the new team is 100 percent of it. Um does that speak just to like, that's the best way to learn in your opinion is like, yeah, you can sit there and look at the map, but like, you got to get out on the road. You got to have somebody who knows what they're doing and that can drastically accelerate the learning. I think so. Yeah, I definitely. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. And, um, and I, I took that model everywhere I went Mm -hmm. for the agency. So, but by the end of that, you don't even, you don't need a map. You don't need a GPS. You can, and the, and the reason they do that is, is it, well, it's for a multitude of reasons. They want you to know what the where the hell you're going in case something bad happens. They want you to be able to adjust on the fly. And when you're working there, everything is, it's, it's very precise times. So if you need to be somewhere, if you need to be on a target, if you need to meet somebody, if you need to snatch somebody, you need to be there damn near on the second. And 1037, so, not 1035, yeah, not 1039. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's why you need to know all those back routes so that if you do get there early, then you're not driving on the same road twice, going through the same area twice. You can weave in and out of these neighborhoods without going by the same house twice so that people aren't going, hey, what the hell is that vehicle doing? We've never seen that here. It's It passed by three times. And mm-hmm. you don't just loiter mm-hmm. waiting for somebody to show up. It's, mm-hmm. it's all right, maybe you get to where you're going or the area maybe five minutes early, and then you jet in mm-hmm. uh, immediately, you know, 
on the timestamp. When you're doing this, you mentioned not burning the vehicles, not getting identified. Um, what are you wearing? What kind of vehicles are they? Um, and I obviously want to share what, whatever you can, but like, are you dressed like people would think of uh, the CIA contractor uh, that they see, you know, the movies? Is it you've got the local kind of clothing and trying to fit into the, the culture? I'm assuming you're not in a military uniform. You know, like, what, what, what is that like? And, and is there any intentionality? in what you're wearing, what vehicles you're driving and stuff in, in terms of not being uh, identified? Yeah, it's, again, it's kind of all of the above. It, it's it's situational dependent. Some some areas you go to, you'll be wearing the same thing every day. Some areas you go to, you're wearing a business suit in the morning and you're wearing a military uniform, fully kitted up, getting ready to go do something by night. Hmm. And, uh, and they're all it's just different missions for different things. And, mm -hmm. and, and so, uh, I can't get into specifics with, uh, vehicles and equipment, but you could be driving the most luxurious, mm -hmm. the whole thing sedan. And, you know, you can think of with all the little gizmos and shit that you would think that would be in there to a beat up, a beat up, <laughs> does this run <laughs> piece of crap, you know, something that, and then you get in and you're like, Whoa, like, is that a rocket launch? No, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's, they're all, they're souped up. And then as far as dress, same thing. It's, you know, you might be going to have a meeting with President Karzai one day and you're all suited up. And then the next day, you know, you're, you're, you're doing some CIA spy shit and you're yeah. dressed up like, like the locals and Arab garms and, and, and however the locals dress. Yeah. During your time uh, doing uh, the CIA work, do you ever get in a situation where they were, you're like, fuck, they, they know that I'm here? Oh, yeah. Right. What, whatever you could share, like, how do you know that they know? Um, and then, like, what do you do? Right. And I think I think of that as, like, probably one of the more stressful situations you could be put in without it being uh, full on combat and firefights and, and things like that. So, like, how do you kind of navigate, one, identifying, like, shit, they got me. And then two, like, how, do you leave? Do you just like, fuck it, I got a gun and if they come over here, I'm shooting or? You could, but uh, <laughs> how do you know? Well, uh, they'll shoot at you. Okay, all right. <laughs> but, so, um, so usually it's like, that guy doesn't belong here. I'm killing him. Yep. Some, it's not usually. It's it's. I've had times where I've been walking somebody in mm -hmm. and which we can go over that in a little bit, but I've had times where I'm, um, um, controlling an asset, I'll mm -hmm. put it that way. Mm -hmm. And then we've been compromised and I look out my window and somebody's there point blank shooting at me. Really? Um, luckily it's a up armored vehicle. No, you're not going to crack the vehicle mm -hmm. and kill that guy because that's not what you're there to do. Mm -hmm. And if you do do that, then, I mean, there's other important people in the vehicle. There's do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's yeah. not, yeah, you could let your ego get to, you know, crack seals and kill that guy. Or you could just go, hey, we're in an up armor vehicle. Fuck him. Let's get out of here. Yeah. You know, before we make a bigger scene. Mm -hmm. And and do they kind of know that to some degree? Like one of the things uh, in, in my limited experience was like there almost was this like uh, we know that if we shoot close to them, they're going to do X. And like as long as uh, we can be antagonistic, uh, as long as we don't kill one of them or, or do anything like the likelihood that they are going to take the most drastic response. It's not like an airstrike is going to happen. Yeah. Right. And almost in some way they, they realize that in these situations. And so they're shooting at you and yeah, if they kill somebody, they'd like that, but 
they don't expect you to fire back or is it no they're like down behind a vehicle and they're expecting a full-on firefight both okay but they don't know they don't just because they're contacting you doesn't mean they know who you are you know sometimes they do most of the time they don't they just, they just see, see a white dude they just see a white boy yeah. you know dressed up like an arab and they're like he didn't belong. That doesn't, that doesn't, <laughs> nice try, you know, and, uh, cute Halloween costume, yeah. Sean, <laughs> they don't even sell those sandals anywhere yeah. in Afghanistan, <laughs> but you know, but, uh, it's cause I bought them on the beach in Mexico, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, so it's, 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 it could be anything. It could be a full on assault like Benghazi, mm-hmm. you know, or I've been in safe houses that have been compromised and mm-hmm. had hundreds of fighters trying to take us out Really, to, you know, to what I just described mm-hmm. to, hey, it might just be a mob, you mm-hmm. know, surrounding the vehicle. And they, honestly, those are the worst because you don't know what's coming. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, shit. Am I, there's women, there's kids, there's bad guys, there's good guys. That, yeah, it's complex. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the other uh, pieces of war in general that people uh, forget. We had a, uh, a gentleman who's on uh, from the Intel community. Um and he was talking about like uh, in Russia, Ukraine, everyone wants to say good guy, bad guy. And war is just fucking complex, right? The good guys can do bad things intentionally or unintentionally. The bad guys can do good things intentionally or unintentionally. And so uh, that complexity from like a macro standpoint or a macro analysis, uh, okay, I think people can kind of wrap their heads around it. But what you just described, you're sitting in a vehicle in a foreign land where you've been compromised and you're getting surrounded. That alone, if you hadn't passed all the vetting and have the emotional control, a lot of people who, I mean, we saw it literally in 2020, there's cops who just slam on the gas. Yeah. Right? And it's like, it's it's a human instinct. It, it's not a, I hate these people. It's not, it's like, I'm fucking scared. Yeah. And you can't do that though. Because if you do that, we recede on the news. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which revert back to that training I was talking about where they pull the hood up, you're in scenario, right? Well, Mm -hmm. now it's real. You're Mm -hmm. in scenario. And, yeah, people do. They think it's black and white. But if you're surrounded by, you know, 300 people and 10 of them are bad guys and they're shooting at you, they shoot at you, you see them, or or they're shooting at you, then they stop, they hand hand their AK-47 to the pregnant woman standing next to him. Now you, the first thing you see is a pregnant woman holding an AK-47. What do you do while you're being shot at? It's right? crazy. You know, so it really chaps my ass when people are so quick to, you know, burn our guys down. When you were doing this, this is uh, like 2010s, uh, 2012, 2013, or what, what time uh, last My last pump with the agency was 2015. 2015, okay. So... In 20, uh, 2008 and nine, when I was in Iraq, there was already talk of like, hey, if we violate the rules of engagement, hey, if we accidentally kill somebody uh, that we're not supposed to kill or all of th- those types of uh, things, you're going to end up on the news. You're going to re- get arrested. Like there was already this fear of the Monday morning quarterback on these situations. Now, the positive argument would have been it made us think more critically about what we were doing. And so we didn't do dumb shit because there was always this fear that, that it would be uh, known and, and uh, uh, kind of punishment for it. The downside is there's a hell of a lot of situations. I am 100% positive. Dudes probably acted slower than they should have. Uh, thankfully, in many cases, people didn't die. Some of them, maybe they did uh, because they were scared, right? Is that also true inside of the agencies as well? 
Or was that just like more of a military thing where it felt like uh, there was extra scrutiny during those times? I've, I've never, I don't think that's an agency thing. I think that's a military thing. Okay. Uh, I think that's, yeah, that's a political type thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were pretty good about Shielding lifting the reins and letting us do what we need to do to mm-hmm. keep everybody safe and, 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 you know, get rid of the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it was that time frame. Uh, we were, I was with the agency and the Marine Corps was actually going to do the biggest push since Fallujah mm-hmm. in, um, Helmand province. And the new ROEs came out from the Obama administration. It was, if you're shot at and the enemy drops their rifle and you shoot, you're done. You're going to jail. And so, yeah, I think that got a lot of people killed that shouldn't have been killed because he chopped the legs off of the guys out there doing the job, Mm -hmm. you know. This episode is brought to you by Bullish. The Bullish Exchange leverages innovations of DeFi and a regulated framework so you can execute fast, reliable trades with tight spreads, even in volatile markets. Bullish's total trading volumes have now exceeded $100 billion since it launched in November 2021. Bullish offers industry-leading order depth. It's one of the deepest markets on the planet for Bitcoin and ETH. And now with its new Longhorn product release, there are more reasons to be bullish. They've got tighter spreads all the time and new ways to customize how you generate income on your idle assets. Learn more at bullish.com and follow at bullish on Twitter today. This episode is brought to you by Compass Mining, the world's largest marketplace for mining hardware and hosting. With Compass, everyone can mine Bitcoin. You can do it at home or in one of their 23 hosting facilities around the world. All you need to do to start mining your own Bitcoin is go to compassmining.io today. Again, if you want to get into Bitcoin mining, go check out compassmining.io today. I've told a story before, uh, 2008, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, we're rolling down a known place where our IEDs, we refer to it as IED Alley. I think almost every road in Iraq at the time was probably known as IED Alley. Um, And uh, it goes off, lifts up the first truck, slams down. Uh, We kind of go into, you know, our normal uh, procedure. And the truck that I'm in, we see a dude, uh, two guys, running across a field in the middle of the night with fucking guns. He has to call for permission to engage. And he calls and they tell him at first, no. Calls again, no. Finally, by the third or fourth time, they're like, go ahead. And so long story short is eventually guys go out there, go down, uh, and they walk into an ambush. And I remember just saying to myself, like, again, you are in a war zone an IED just went off and there's two dudes at fucking three o'clock in the morning running through the field with guns. Yeah. I don't think that they're going to the store. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, tight. And, and so like, again, it, it's this weird complex thing because you understand why they're coming up with the rules. Cause there had been situations that have been uh, negative. They're trying to cover their asses. The fact that you're calling, I mean, it was just like this crazy situation. And I'm thankful that I saw the situation cause I understand it better. But it also highlighted like there's no way people in the media or kind of the mainstream audience can quite understand how complex those situations are. Where So it sounds like maybe the agency was actually a better place to operate because you didn't have to deal with some of that complexity. And it was more so just get your job done. Yeah, definitely. I was in a similar situation uh, is what you're talking about in the SEAL teams. And it was a no shoot. And I, I still regret it to this day. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I didn't have to deal with that. It, 
at the agency. Got it. Uh, you mentioned earlier some pretty uh, hairy situations. Your safe house gets compromised, et cetera. W- is there one situation that's like the most dangerous that you could describe in, in some degree of detail in terms of either you were like, oh, fuck, like we're not getting out of here uh, or – in hindsight, it may have been really, really bad, uh, but maybe you didn't even realize it at the time. A couple times. Uh, I've been in, I got to be careful, you know, how I word this, but yeah, one time I was in a safe house and mm-hmm. there were not very many of us at all, uh, just a, less than 10, mm-hmm. you know, in an area um, that. Where, where nobody nobody else was mm-hmm. nobody else was down there and when you start getting into surveillance and counter surveillance and spying on people one of the like kind of the rule number one is don't be time and place predictable don't mm-hmm. use the same routes don't leave your house at the same time don't go to the same spots every day everything has to be random you don't want to create uh what we call like a pattern of life mm-hmm. uh, it, or if you do create a pattern of life, you want it to be a false one. Mm-hmm. You know, you want your pattern, the pattern of life that everybody else sees. It's, it's, it's a facade, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you're it's, doing it intentionally. Yes. Because you're you're like, using I it want everybody beat. to see me go to Starbucks at eight o'clock in the morning, every single day, mm-hmm. everyone from the, empl- I, you know, I want everybody to see me go to the gym right after Starbucks, you know, and that would be like a, uh, something here, mm-hmm. you know, so you, you, you kind of create your facade. Well, we weren't doing that at this spot. And it was, this was an, remember I was talking about at the age or at the SEAL teams, there was mm-hmm. this, there was the guys that had been in for 20 years who hadn't mm-hmm. done anything. And then you have the assholes like me that come in and we'd go do it right away. Well, same with the agency. Um, similar. You got all these guys that had been, you know, during the Cold War, they came in, they were doing all these Cold War tactics with Russia, you know, and all, all that stuff. And then they throw them in Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Pac- wherever, right? Mm-hmm. And they're still using those tactics from a Cold War environment, trying to get those to work in a wartime environment mm-hmm. where everybody wants to kill you. It's not a permissive environment. Everybody wants to fucking kill you here. And you'd see a lot of these guys coming making transitions from that kind of a a career into a wartime environment. And it just, it just without any training or very minimal and it didn't work uh, for a long time because it was all they cared about was collecting intelligence. It wasn't, it wasn't, Hey, we need to, we're going to be here for a while. Let's, Mm -hmm. let's not draw them into where we live. Well, nobody wanted to listen. And, uh, and I'd mentioned, I said, Hey, we're being really time and place predictable. We've been to this place. I don't know, three times in the past week, you know, we need to find different routes. We need to alter our times. We need to, you know, meet these people at different places. They didn't want to do it the very next day. We got hit and, mm-hmm. uh, turns out we did get compromised. We had over a hundred Taliban fighters, uh, closing in on our position and bullets, uh, flying everywhere we really couldn't engage back because we didn't we couldn't see where everything was coming from or it was too far mm-hmm. uh, for us to engage and we actually man we that started early in the morning and I don't think we got pulled out until two or three a.m at night by the British they had to call in British guys to come get us uh, from somewhere else mm-hmm. 
And um, but and you're just like, I didn't think we were making it out of that. You're yeah. just like sitting on your hands like, oh, fuck. Or are you guys at least shooting what you can and, and trying to fight back? I mean, we're shooting what we can, but there was there was there was a couple of different positions that had taken over a high rise building that overlooked our neighborhood. Mm. And we couldn't we couldn't see where they were shooting from. So yeah, you could shoot at the building. Yeah, but you can't see where the hell it's coming from. And they were throwing grenades at, at uh, anybody that tried to get down, uh, get up the building. They would just throw frags, RPGs, whatever. And then they had another position where all where these Taliban fighters were massing, mm-hmm. and uh, and then it came out. It actually came out in the news the next day that they were there to get us. Mm. And uh, a lot of things like that happened. And so in those situations, um, you are operating with obviously what you guys can see. Are you also getting communications like they know that this uh, these fighters are amassing? They're able to kind of give you almost the play by play. I think of a lot uh, for those that. Uh, may not know as much about this. Uh, it's kind of like a football game. The football game is getting played, but they have coaches up in the box who can kind of see the, the full field. Are you guys getting like intel reports and stuff like that at, and you're using that to try to fight back? Or is it pretty much, hey, we're doing the best we can to get you there, you know, get there to get you guys, but uh, you're on your own right now? We're, we were on our own. It was, yeah. we're probably going to die. Let's destroy all the classified information. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and hope for the best, <laughs> you know, go down and yeah. take as many of them with us as we can. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And, um, how do you think about fight or flight in those situations? And, and what's fascinating to me is, uh, you've pretty much already said, Hey, we're, we're likely to die here. If we try to run to the vehicles and, you know, go on a high speed chase, it sounds like you're pretty far. It's not like you can just drive down the street to a military base where there's, you know, help or anything like that. Uh, if you stay and fight, Sounds like you probably think we're going to get overpowered here at some point. Um, is it just out of necessity you you stay, or is there a calculation between like try to run versus stay and fight? Like, There's just nowhere to go. Yeah, you know. And I mean, yes, it could it could have been me and the two other operators that were on the ground could have evacuated out of there. Mm-hmm. But when you have what are you going to do with everybody? When else? you have a a uh, uh, chief who's doesn't take care of himself and he's overweight because he's fucking hot dogs every night. And, you know, you have, you have women who, who aren't going to do well, you know, mm-hmm. leaving, you have all that ammo there. You have all the classified information there. It's, it's really, it's just not an option. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot from this story, it reminds me a lot of the Benghazi story, right? Mm-hmm. Where basically, uh, the most general description is there's the ambassador and kind of his living quarters. There's a safe house or a compound that was uncompromised from what I understand, uh, previously a couple miles away. And, uh, there was a potential takeover of the ambassador and he became in danger. And so a number of operators, including CIA went to try to protect him, evacuate him, et cetera. And then at some point they actually, evacuate back to the safe house and are compromised. And now here comes everyone on that location. In those scenarios, uh, the operators, I think people have a higher degree of confidence, like they're fucking trained to survive these situations, to, to excel in these situations and probably could get themselves individually out or, or the small group. But to your point, there's people who aren't trained. Yeah. And so 
in movies, it is uh, presented as like, hey, everyone, shut the fuck up. Sit down in this room and like, we got this. We're going to go and fight and like, you guys just stay here and, and uh, uh, don't do anything. Is that actually how it plays out? Or are there scenarios where, uh, no, it's like, dude, we're all going to die. Here's a gun. This is how yeah. you pull the trigger and like, get up here with us. And you're asking somebody who maybe doesn't have the right training or, or as much training to, you know, fight side by side with you. You get, after you've been in, you know, a few of these situations and you see what a basic civilian mindset, because that is what, yeah, CIA is basically a lot of, it's a lot of college grads who are really smart, <laughs> you know, not the best war fighters, but very intelligent college grads they did put intelligence in the name yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right so hopefully yes yeah and uh <clears throat> but you get really good at assessing what maybe somebody can handle Got and it. so it might not be hey here's a gun it might be hey just let me know if anybody if you see anybody coming at us through that window or let me or watch that door let me know if anybody comes through that door. Here's a radio. I want mm. you to tell this person everything that you're seeing right now. You know, and so a lot of times uh, what I would do in those situations is you give somebody a job and it might not be, and it'll calm them down because then their mm. mind's on something other than, holy shit, all these bad guys are coming to get us. And so in that particular instance, it was, I mean, because there's still, you know, even though he's a fat slob and he can't move, he's still a fucking American, you yeah. know, and you can't abandon Americans. And, and been successful enough to achieve exactly. you know, a station chief or whatever. So like, he's not a complete moron. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, so you give him a job and a lot of, in that particular uh, scenario was, Hey, watch communications, let us know what's coming through, you know, on comms. And uh, with the others, it was get all this classified stuff and, and, and get rid of it, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so they're busy doing that. And when you do that also, it doesn't, even if it's just a bullshit job, you know, like, Hey, go, uh, make sure the fucking dogs are okay. You know, they're not seeing everything develop. They're not mm -hmm. seeing the battlefield develop, no matter if, you know, if it's for the better or for the worse. And so it keeps them a little bit calmer when, when they can't see the big picture mm -hmm. and their mind's busy doing other things. Is there a flip of leadership in those moments? Like prior to engagement or, or combat, is it like kind of like the smart people are in charge and like we're here to either protect them, execute, you know, orders, whatever. And like now bullets are flying, shut up, sit down, I'm in control now. And, and the operators take over or is there more of a balance in like the more peaceful times? Oh, oh a lot of times it's welcomed. It's not shut up. You know, we're in charge now. It's it. they're like, hey, this is why you're here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> okay. We do like you. Yes. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it's like, I got it. You know, and uh, that's that's how it plays out a lot. When that's not happening. Yes, there's definitely a lot of animosity, especially when it comes to the guys who are doing the cold work because they're not used to having to work with people like us because mm -hmm. they're not used to working in dangerous environments. Mm -hmm. So when when they have to get attached to people like us, uh, he goes get involved and it, it turns into, you know, it could turn into a shit show. Yeah. When you look back across military and CIA, what are like some of the core things that you've been able to take away as you've gone into the business world and, and the podcast and, and that type of stuff? Like 
there's probably like the easy stuff of just like, hey, work hard, right? Like have yeah. discipline, that type of stuff. But are there maybe one or two lessons that you learned that you're like, I actually use this much more often than people may realize that uh, have really helped you kind of in your post-military or contractor career? Patience. Patience is a big one. And um, back to that bigger picture, you know, being able to step back and let a situation develop and, and look at a bigger picture uh, is, is really helped me with my business mm -hmm. being able to not just look right here but hey let's let's look at all the peripherals and 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 forward thinking and planning mm -hmm. as well i i there's a lot of forward thinking and a lot of planning that goes into you know not just operations but entire deployments mm -hmm. uh you know if you're in a specific uh area of operation the the the, the plan might it might be a five-year plan you know and so and in those planning phases and everything, I learned, you know, hey, let's it. I brought it to business. Let's do a lot more forward thinking. And 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 I'm not talking projections. I'm just talking, you know, if I do this, what's what's going to happen? Wargame you know? it. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think it helped going from the seals? You said you mentioned that you then went and started doing some real estate stuff, but. Patience wasn't a, a key uh, a trait of yours, right? Yeah. Some of the other things that that maybe uh, you found challenging uh, coming out of the military right into the civilian world. Did you feel like the CIA was somewhat of a step, you know, okay, I'm not in the military. I'm not a civilian. There's still danger. There's still, you know, levels of combat, obviously. Um, but it helped almost like offboard you a little bit into the civilian world or did it actually go the opposite direction? And like you felt like it actually – compounded some of those problems and you had to do more work once you got out of contracting to get back into the civilian world. I would say the CIA definitely was a, it was a good, if you paid attention, there's a lot of lessons you, you could have learned that helped you in the civilian world and a lot more than in the SEAL teams, mm -hmm. uh, from my experience, especially when it comes to patience and dealing with people and, and, and what is and is not socially acceptable. Um, with the SEAL teams, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a frat house. It's yeah. not a frat house. That's a, that's a horrible description, but you're with a bunch of, you're with 16 guys that you live, eat, sleep, shit with, you know, for your entire career. Yeah. And so that builds a camaraderie and there's a lot of trust and, 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 you know, I think you know where I'm going, you know, when I, when I think of the military, uh, in general, I'm assuming special operations is just this on steroids. Um, I always think of it as a high trust environment. Yes. Right. And it's like, whether that's the training, whether it's the fact that we all got uniforms on, whether it's the flag, you know, whatever the, the reason is that can be dissected, but that high trust environment allows you to be super honest with people. People sure get offended sometimes, but like not as much. Uh, and there's this element of like, you do your fucking job, I'll do my job. And like together as a team, we'll be successful. Whereas I think that uh, in large corporations, for sure, that doesn't exist. Even in smaller teams, society in general, because there's not that high trust environment, you get a lot more of the political correctness. You get a lot more of the, uh, you offended me, right? And, and these things that just, they don't really exist in the military for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, sure, there are the outlier situations, but uh, it allows for a level of efficiency on an interpersonal level that just I don't see replicated very often. And I think people who are listening or watching to this, um, if you have a friend who you can be like dead on honest with, you're like I really appreciate that person. Yes. Right? And like that person will call me back, you're fucking up right now. Right. Uh, but that's like 
I'm assuming a SEAL team is like 15 other guys who are all willing to do that. And if you're fucking up and you're not listening, might come over there and smack you upside the head and say, yeah. hey, I told you you weren't listening. A lot of things that happen within a SEAL team are inappropriate <laughs> in other environments. <laughs> and and um, it would probably be very similar to a firehouse. Got it. And um, that shit does not fly at the agency. And that took me a long time to kind of wrap my head around. I didn't mm -hmm. like it. Mm -hmm. for a long time but the agency does have a, 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 a certain sophistication to it that it definitely carries over you, mm -hmm. you just you learn how to carry yourself and deal with people in a more sophisticated and professional manner uh, because you have to as a is 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 um as you would in the, in the seal teams got it um when you came out of the CIA, uh, I've heard you talk about the use of psychedelics, and um, it, it seems like that really had a profound positive impact on kind of uh, your ability uh, across a number of different parts of your life. Talk a little bit about that. What, were you just like on the internet one day and were like, oh, I'm going to go try this? Did no. you have a friend who tried it and suggested it, a doctor? Like what, what was kind of your introduction to psychedelics, and then what was that experience like? Well, the... No, I wasn't. I didn't read it on the internet. I was actually <laughs> totally against them. Uh, um, I didn't like anything that I associated with hippies. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> Communism, a, there were, psychedelics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, and and so I, I didn't even. It wasn't even on my radar, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. But then I did this interview with uh, this uh, former SEAL Eddie Gallagher and. Mm -hmm he had talked about psychedelics in his interview. And, and so I asked him about it and then he connected me with, um, other people who, who, who started a nonprofit for psychedelic therapy. So I interviewed them and I learned about a lot about it. Then I started, and then it just kept happening. I started seeing former colleagues of mine coming on to my show to interview them. And it was just, I did the psychedelic therapy and my family dynamic changed, my business changed, my anxiety's gone, a lot of that stuff. And so I did it. I interviewed so many guys uh, that had gone down and, 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 and done the therapy that I was like, all right, I'm going to, you know, I still have my own demons that I need to mm -hmm. deal with. I did three and a half years of therapy, talk therapy twice a week. And uh, which did help me. I would definitely recommend it. But, but um, but then I moved from uh, South Florida to Nashville, and that therapy ended because uh, I didn't want to build the trust with a new therapist. Things started getting out of whack. Uh, my business really was expanding. My mind wasn't present anymore. Um, I just had a son. I wanted to be present. My anxiety was turning into anger uh, again, and, and just a lot of the stuff that guys deal with coming, you know, home from combat. And so things started getting really out of whack and I made a call and I said, Hey, I would like to try this. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of good things and they got me right in. I went down there, um, to do it. And I did this, I did Ibogaine and, uh, five MAO DMT. Mm -hmm. And where do you go? And like, what is, what is the actual process when you say you did, uh, these two specific ones? Like, is it something that you are ingesting are you drinking it? Is it a solid? Like just kind of walk people through. Because I think a lot of people have heard of psychedelics, but they probably don't actually understand what that process looks like. Okay. Ibogaine comes from the plant aboga, which is a root in, I think it's Gabon, mm -hmm. Africa. I 
could be off on yeah. that. But um, and so what what I took was ibogaine, which is um, I've been told is the most powerful psychedelic uh, on the planet. And and so it was a pill. I think I took four pills, and um, and that was like a twelve hour experience. But it's very, it's not like, from my experience, it wasn't going out into the into the jungle with a with a medicine man and and taking psychedelics, which I would totally do now. Um, but <clears throat> this was a very controlled medical type environment. It was in kind of a luxurious beach house, okay, um, out of the country. And but before I went down, it was. What are your intentions? Why do you want to do this? This isn't just, hey, let's take psychedelics, get naked, and howl at the moon. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, why do you want to do this? What, what do you want to change about yourself? And, and, and talking to therapists before you go. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so I wrote down all these intentions uh, that I wanted. And then I got down there, and it was, it was EKGs, it was physicals. You know what medications are you on? We're gonna hook you up to a heart rate monitor when you do it. All this, all this stuff to make it safe. And um, so I did that. And when I came out, I had lost 11, 11 pounds uh, of in twelve hours. Eleven pounds in a week. I didn't weigh myself the whole time, but a week. And I ate the food down there is amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, you're eating like four meals a day. Uh, great chef, whatever. I shouldn't have lost weight is mm-hmm. the point I'm making. Lost 11 pounds, detoxed 11 pounds of heavy metals out of my system. Uh, my eye color changed. The whites of my really? eyes changed. Um, my anxiety was gone. My, I, I haven't had a drink in I think nine months now. I didn't even go down there to quit drinking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it wasn't, it's not... It's not, uh, it's not hard for me. You know, it's, it just, I just didn't want it. I, it's, it's almost like it showed me this shit's poison. Quit putting it in your fucking body cause you're mm-hmm. killing yourself. Mm-hmm. And so sugars went away, caffeine went away, alcohol went away, marijuana went away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't go down there for any of that. The, the main reason I went down there was just to be in the moment with my, with my newborn son and my wife, mm-hmm. which happened. And then all this other stuff, all these other benefits came. The other thing that happened was I quit, I quit putting that pressure on myself of what does everybody think? What, you know, which really, now I realize that really hindered my business. It was, oh, I don't want to do that because I might offend somebody. And the, I think, I think they want to hear this and I can't do that. And it was like, fuck it. I don't care. You know, if I get canceled, I get fucking canceled. And if they don't like, if my audience doesn't like the content, that I'm putting out, then I'll find a new audience that will. Mm-hmm. And, and so it kind of gave me like, I wouldn't say courage cause I've always had courage. It just gave me this. I don't fucking care. I'm going to do what I want to do mm-hmm. finally. And, mm-hmm. and when I came home and, th- and then you add in, you know, the no drinking, you don't have that morning fog anymore. And, and man, it was like, my business was always on an upward trajectory. And then after that, it went straight up. Yeah. Um, why did you lose the weight? Is it like uh, ayahuasca? We, I've had people come on and, and describe it as like I'm throwing up, I'm shitting, I'm, I'm you know like literally purging my body the entire time. Is it a similar type experience, or was it something else? Well, it's a heavy metal detox, so 
you know, just think of all the heavy metals, the burn pits, the ammo, the bombs, the everything that that you've ingested when you were in Iraq, mm -hmm. you know, and and I don't know how long you were over there, but that shit stays in there, yeah. you know. And so when that stuff gets sucked out of you, you know, by the ibogaine, that's 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 a lot of weight. Yeah. Did you feel stronger when you came back? Like, did, did you feel, so you lost weight. How did you feel physically? Uh, it seems like you're mentally were much clearer, kind of all, all these benefits. What about physically? This episode is brought to you by Exodus. Accessing Web3 across multiple networks just got a hell of a lot easier. Exodus is one of the most popular crypto wallets for mobile and desktop, and they just added Chrome and Brave web browsers to the lineup. The new Exodus Web3 wallet is a multi-chain browser extension that lets you safely navigate Web3 and DeFi apps on Ethereum, Solana, and Algorand from one wallet. Manage mint and sell NFTs on multiple networks in one wallet. You can swap Solana and ETH tokens natively right within the extension. And if you ever hit a snag, world-class customer service is available 24-7. More of your favorite chains are on the way, so run, don't walk, over to exodus.com slash pomp to download the Exodus Web3 wallet right now. Again, exodus.com slash pomp. Go check them out today. This episode is brought to you by Unstoppable Domains. They've partnered with Blockchain.com to create NFT domain names ending in .blockchain. It's the perfect ending to show that you're a believer in a decentralized future. The Blockchain.com community can join a short waitlist to get one for free at Blockchain.com slash waitlist slash blockchain domain. Free NFT domains provide all the benefits of premium unstoppable domains, including fee-free lifelong ownership. If you don't have a blockchain.com wallet, no worries. There's new free domains available to everyone. Either join the waitlist for a free blockchain.com domain or visit unstoppabledomains.com to buy your domain today, starting as low as $5. Unstoppabledomains.com. It's, it's not... Uh... Like, are, are you asking if I'm better in the gym or if I just felt healthier overall? Both. Yeah, I, f I felt a lot healthier overall. Yeah. So, like, it was like a, it almost felt like a true detox that I think people aspire to have when they do, whether it's fad diets or, or whatever. That's what really what they're looking for. So, I want to be healthier. I want to look better or whatever as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a second psychedelic that you took as well. Uh, you did those together in the same week? Yes. Okay. You ended with this stuff called 5-MeO-DMT, which is a toad venom. Okay. And toad venom sounds way cooler than the scientific. Yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, it's they call it a, they call it the bliss drug. Um, it's an ego death. You, you, this sounds weird. Have you ever done any psychedelics? I've never done any of them. And uh, it's something that I, I find fascinating. I've got friends who have built a number of psychedelic companies and, and he's been talking about it forever. And so uh, I, I actually think there's like two or three people who I've heard talk about it. You're one of them uh, in that we have similar types of backgrounds, probably similar interests, things like that. Uh, you're very different than I think most people who talk about it. Right. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm interested uh, in, in understanding more. So 5-MeO-DMT five, five gives you it's it's you die it's a death experience okay and, and i know that's uh i know how hard that is to wrap your head around but those who've done it uh definitely understand but you you there is no doubt in my mind that if i die a peaceful death this is exactly what i'm going to experience okay explain more in terms of when you say you die like mentally there's like 
anguish and you're like, this fucking sucks? Is it like a physical thing? It's the most profound experience of my entire life. And, um, and I don't, I don't say that lightly. Yeah. Um, but I'll just go through the experience. Okay. So you smoke this mm-hmm. and, um, you smoke this and they say count backwards from 10. I hit about seven and it was lights out, but you're just sitting there, you fall back into the, you know, the pillow or whatever. I wanted to do it outside cause I, and, uh, with no blindfold, usually they do a blindfolded inside, but I wanted to be in nature. Cause I'd okay. always heard, you know, Hey, psychedelics makes you feel like you're in it. You're in nature. And, um, so I did it. The first thing I felt was I felt more anxiety and fear all at once than I have ever felt in any other experience of my life to include thinking I'm going to die in a safe house because we're getting overrun by bad guys. Um, to include somebody shooting at me point blank, to include all the shit I saw on the teams. Mm -hmm. And um, this was more fear and more anxiety than I'd ever felt. And it literally literally felt like, like just all this bad negative shit was getting sucked out of my veins. Hmm. And, um, And that probably lasted for about 30 to 45 seconds. And I just, I just kept telling myself, just let it, let, just let go. I think a lot of, there are guys that have bad experiences with this stuff because I don't think they have, I don't say this in a bad way, but I don't think they have the courage to let go because it is the, it's the feeling that you're dying. Mm -hmm. Like if there's no doubt in your head that that you're dying and you know, I've, I've got a family, so that was the only thing left that I was holding on to is I was like, fuck, my fucking son needs me. My wife needs me to help raise my son. But then it was, I was like, I have to die. I have to, I have to do this. And, <clears throat> and I, I let go. And man, like the next thing you feel is just like pure bliss. Mm-hmm. And, and you realize every, everything that's happened to you good, bad, everything in between. It was, it's all, all had a purpose. It was all, everything happened just the way it's supposed to happen. And when it came to my wife and son leaving them, uh, and, 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 and kind of succumbing to this death, I realized that's okay too. You know, I was like, they're, it's okay because they're going to wind up here. Mm -hmm. And this is, it's, it's freedom. Mm -hmm. It is pure freedom. There's no ego. All your insecurities are gone. You know, like none of that shit matters. Um, and so I sat up and I opened my eyes and, you know, uh, you hear people talk about, Oh, the, the energy and, and bad energy and good energy. And Mm -hmm. I always looked at these people like, you're fucking crazy. And I opened my eyes and I saw, I didn't see anything that wasn't there. A lot of people have, uh, the, where the blindfold they have, um, hallucinations. Yes. They have hallucinations. I didn't have any hallucinations. Mine was more intuitive. And what I felt and what I saw was just the transfer of energy through everything, 
through the sky, through the birds, the trees, the grass, the ocean, the islands, off the ocean, everything. You can feel it, you know, transferring from the grass into your feet. And when you hear people say, you know, everything is one, that that's the that's the first time that I ever felt and knew I was like, holy shit, we're all fucking one thing here. Mm-hmm. This is so if I, you know, reach over the table and, and try to fight you, I'm just fighting myself. It's really <laughs> it's really hard to describe. This is why I'm so interested in somebody like you who's gone and done this because I have the same reaction, right? Like um, my wife's got a couple of friends that talk about crystals. If I hear about fucking crystals one more time, I'm like, shut up, right? This shit is all bullshit. Yeah. Uh, uh, energy, like all, all uh, everyone's heard all this stuff, right? I'm like, okay, sure, guys, whatever. Um, other than maybe like memes and vibes on the internet, maybe I'm a little bit of a believer there. But, <laughs> but, but, but other than that, uh, and then I, I hear you talk about this and it's like, look, you're, you're a, I'll call you a normal dude, right? In terms of like, it's not like you were into a bunch of like woo-woo stuff up until this point. And then the way that you describe it, you're like, yo, it changed my life, right? And, and I think that the, it's almost the contrast before and after that's so fascinating to me. Yeah. And, and it sounds like when you came back, a bunch of good stuff started to happen. Did you change anything when you came back? Yeah. Like, like action-wise? Okay, so you, you mentioned things you took away, right, in terms of alcohol and caffeine, things like that. What else do you notice that you changed? Man, I just, I quit listening to all the bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, I quit, I quit listening to what I thought social media wanted me to do with my business. I quit uh, guilt. You know, mm-hmm. we all deal with a lot of guilt. It's, it's how do I tell this person I don't want to do this? Or how do I, I just don't feel it anymore, mm-hmm. you know? And it's starting to come back a little bit, but it's, it and, and because you're not focusing all your energy on, well, I don't want to hurt Anthony's feelings and, and because I don't want to fly down for his podcast. So how do I tell him this? And why the fuck is that person thinking that about, you know, instead of worrying about all this shit, it's, Hey man, I, I, I can't make it down mm-hmm. or, you know, family, you know, I can't, I can't do it. I have this. I need, and, and it takes, it takes the guilt away. Mm-hmm. And if you think about how much time you waste on trying not to offend somebody or trying not to make somebody feel bad or when somebody you have to get asked all the time, could you just, could you, can you do this for me? Can you do that? You know, it, you don't feel bad saying, using the word no mm-hmm. anymore. And it's just, no, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I notice that there's momentum with the use of the word no. There's something I've been thinking about recently. If I start to say no to people, it becomes easier, like the rest of the week or, or that month or whatever. And then if I become undisciplined and I say yes once or twice, next thing you know, I'll say yes to everything. Like, like there is this momentum or, or almost like uh, maybe confidence or I, I don't know how you would describe it, but it's like, if you have the ability to say, starting today, I'm going to say no to people I, I want to say no to, it is easier. Yeah. And, and I don't know if it's like an identity thing. Like I'm somebody who says no. I don't know if it's literally momentum or whatever, but it does feel like uh, people who say yes to a couple of things say yes to everything. People who say no are very disciplined in when they say no. And so it almost feels like just getting the right directional like path of progress is an important piece to it. Sounds like this was a moment where it really set you on a certain path and you've just kind of stayed on that. That's I never thought of it like that. That's a great way to put it. But um, 
yeah, you know, I just, I started, I finally started saying no. And, and because I was, you know, somebody told me once, it was actually my mother-in-law said, every time you say yes to somebody, you're saying no to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so I've always thought about that. And then after doing the psychedelics, I was like, shit, you know, she's right. Mm -hmm. And so I took all that energy of doing shit for people that they don't even really give a fuck if you're doing it for them. If they say, if you say no, they're just on to the next person, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, could you? And so I took all that energy and applied it to my family and my business and myself. And that's when things really, really started coming together for me. Mm -hmm. As you've gone through your career, you've had kind of, I'll call it three or four different careers, right? You had uh, kind of uh, the SEALs, CIA, what you're doing now at, at a minimum. Um, do you still have the same friends? Do you still have the same like peer group through all of that? Or have you found that either through necessity or, or uh, benefit that you've kind of changed over time, right? And, and I think about this from the perspective of like, if it's an intentional thing, right? So uh, you go from the SEALs to the CIA, CIA to kind of the business world. If you don't have the same friend group, they may be offended. Oh, he thinks he's too good for us. Mm -hmm. Oh, he he uh, now doesn't have time for us or, or whatever. Do you experience that at all? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do well, you? Yeah, hell yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, there's people who will listen to this and be like, he's talking about me. And there's people who will listen to this, but he's definitely not talking about me. But some of them are intentional. Right. Some of them are like, hey, this person is not conducive to what I'm trying to accomplish. And like uh, they're the energy vampire or whatever you want to describe it. But like, sorry, dude. Right. Usually dudes. Uh, it's just honestly, I don't have time for this. Yeah. And in those cases, to me, I don't feel guilty. I actually like that's easier for me to deal with because I'm making the decision. It's the people in your life that like you're just focused on what you're doing. And so like, there's not as many intersection points or like as much time uh, that overlaps and you just kind of grow apart. I still feel sometimes guilty to some degree or like, I'm like, damn, I wish it wasn't this way. And I almost have to like, yeah, but that's just the way it is. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. What, what about you? Well, I was going to ask, have you figured out how to filter it yet? <laughs> I'm still working on this. How I filter it. Yeah. How do you do it right now? I filter it. I, I try to filter it is when it comes to friends, who, who can you tell your successes to without people getting jealous mm -hmm. of where you're at in life? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm really starting to figure out is you can't, you can't be fucking around with people that aren't happy for you. Mm -hmm. If they're not happy for you, the only reason they're not happy with you is they're not happy with their own fucking performance, but they're not willing to do anything to up their performance. They're just going to keep you down wherever they're at. And so when I, when I think of who I can tell my successes to, it's probably tell them to, you know, five people, mm -hmm. if that. And so that's who I concentrate all my energy on and everybody else, you know, if we were friends and, and you're not happy for me now, that doesn't mean we're not, I hate you or I'm not going to talk to you, but I'm not going to focus much energy on you anymore because I know there's always going to be that underlined resentment, you yeah. know, and that jealousy and it, and that shit's toxic. You know, it is toxic. I had a, um, I went to a dinner and it was a dinner I should not have been at. There was four or five different billionaires there and they're all friends. And, and so you're at this dinner, maybe there's eight to 10 people, whatever it was. Um, 
and you already feel like a little bit of an outsider, right? Cause like they're all friends and you're like, Jesus, like some of you, uh, it, in a business sense, I look up to you. I, I want to learn from you, like all this stuff. And, uh, the things that they were talking about at this dinner, I was looking around and I was like, you guys sound like the most arrogant fucks <laughs> I've ever heard. Right. But what I realized was no, like, yeah. it, like a- after I left the dinner, I was like, these guys grew up together. They, they literally had nothing. And so they used to talk about like the first customer they got together. Right. And they'd come and they'd be like, Oh, I, I got my first customer. Like, Oh, that's cool. Like, you know, whatever. And it's risen. And now they're talking about, do you want to buy, you know, $50 million boat together? And none of them were judging each other because it was like they had risen up to this level of success, but they also were on the same level as well. So it wasn't like uh, one of them was a billionaire and the other, you know, was unemployed. And so like if the billionaire was like, I think about buying this boat, the other person's like, well, fuck you. You know, I'm trying to find a job. And so there was like the the path together, I think kind of created some camaraderie, but also the ability to talk to people who didn't judge them, even though they were talking about things that everyone else in the world would be like, that's what you're worried about. Yeah. You're literally worried about like, you can't find staff for your boat, right? Yeah. I'm just ma- making up whatever. But to the other ones, they're like, no, I can't either. Yeah. <laughs> right. How, how are you trying to solve that problem? And so it sounds similar to kind of what you're talking about of just like the people who want to see you successful, the people who you feel comfortable sharing the truth with are actually the people who you end up kind of spending your time with. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm I don't think it always has to be like levels. Okay. You know, I think, I think it just has to be who's happy for it or who's happy with themselves. You know, mm. I mean, cause you see this, that would be a, like a financial or business, uh, scenario, but then you have family scenarios and, you know, you get a lot of people who, I don't know what your family situation is, mm-hmm. but if it's good, you probably have a lot of people who are in a shitty family dynamic who are jealous of what you have with your wife and your kid. Mm-hmm. You know, we see that. Uh, me and my wife see that or, or, you know, they're, they're jealous of your business. They're mm-hmm. jealous of people get jealous on how many followers you have on Twitter, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so when you see that, when I see any of that come out, I'm like, all right, we need to pull back here and, and concentrate more on, on, on these people because mm-hmm. they're happy for us. They're happy in their lives. And, and does that make sense? Yeah, I don't, it makes a hundred percent sense. And and actually, when you mentioned things like social media, I've talked to people who have immense millions of subscribers on YouTube or whatever. And every once in a while, they'll say something to me to the effect of like, sometimes I wish I could go back and have none. Yeah. Right. Because to, you mentioned earlier, like what your audience wants. Some of them are like, hey, you know, I, there's one person I'm thinking in, in particular, he's one of the top 15 YouTubers in the world. And he's like, when I started doing this, I had certain interests. Those aren't the same interests I necessarily have today, but I feel like I got a job now. Yeah. And and like they've almost become the audience is the boss. Yeah. W- which is a little weird as well, right? Do you, do you feel that sometimes? I did before psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> now I don't. Talk about the business that you have built. Like, how do you think about uh, what it entails and like, what are you trying to accomplish, right? I always think of like businesses have some sort of mission or, or goal that they're going after. Like, what are you driving towards there? You know, everybody, it's, everybody's, it's all preparation, right? I want to make more money so that my kid can go to the best private school. I can get the car I want. I could live in the good neighborhood. I don't want to be in a, in a, in a neighborhood with a bunch of crime and da, 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 right. It's all, 
money and possessions and stuff like that. And I don't think a lot of people invest for what's coming after this life. And in, in whether that's, you know, whether you believe in uh, some type of religion or whatever, I just believe if you inject good into this world, then good shit is going to come your way. And that's all I fucking care about, man, is mm-hmm. I want, you know, I, I, we do heavy, heavy, heavy interviews uh, where I'll bring, you know, uh, a Delta guy to his most vulnerable state that he's ever fucking been in, you know, mentally. And because he's there or I go there or whoever's on the show goes there, that that lets everybody, because he's a Delta guy or because I'm a SEAL and a CIA guy or because you're a, you know, business phenomenon, uh, you know, people look at that and they're like, well, fuck it, that guy, if that guy could admit that and, and, and then I can do that. Or mm-hmm. if that guy can work on himself and admit these faults, then I can do that. And if he can get, if he's been through all that shit, I can get through my little mess, you know, and, <clears throat> and I, that's one aspect. The other thing I like to accomplish is I'm, you know, with podcasts, a lot of people, all they care about is I, I need to get, I need to get the guy with a million followers on my show because everybody's going to want to listen to what I never listened to that shit. I always liked getting the guy that nobody would give the fucking time of day to, cause he's new starting a business, you know, struggling, grinding it out. And I can pull him and be like, hey, man, I see what you're doing and you're fucking doing a good job. And and I want to give you an audience that you probably never would have had exposure to. Mm-hmm. And, and and I'm lucky, you know, and I use it for good. But when people come on my show, their fucking business goes through the roof. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very selective on 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 who I bring on, especially when it comes to, you know, the former military guys or or the uh, CIA guys. But. I bring them on and the audience gets to learn all these lessons. Their business takes off. They learn a lot. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll do a lot of consulting, you know, for the guys after the show, um, after release, I'll make sure like, hey man, are you ready for this shit? <laughs> because, you know, like I just did this guy, Cody Alford, and I called Cody like the day before his episodes released. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? You know, how, are you ready? you're going to fucking blow up. And he didn't believe me. And he's like, man, I just, I, it's rough. My best friend just died. That's tell a little bit about Cody's story. Cause I think he's actually like a pretty interesting, uh, uh, maybe example. Cody. Of the, yeah. Of the types of people that you would bring on. Cody, normal guy, you know, didn't grow up in a, in a wealthy family. Wasn't like a super athlete, anything joined the Marine Corps was the fastest guy ever in the Marine Corps to make E8. Um, was one of the was one of the first guys uh, to stand up Marsoc. Phenomenal operator. For not like the guy's just a the badass. He's he's he just wins at every fucking thing he does, and no matter what the struggle is, he overcomes it. So, just phenomenal career, phenomenal operator. Um, a very, just a solid human being. Call him up. He's he's a little depressed. His best friend had just died. Uh, obviously understandable. His business, he's grinding, grinding, grinding. He's not getting a fucking break. 
And he's like, man, I just, I don't have any shirts in stock. I don't have this. I don't have that. And I'm like, what the, f-? I was like, hey, man, this fucking opportunity is not going to come again. Mm-hmm. I was like, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to fucking do a pre-sale on all your fucking shirts. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you're going to stand up a Patreon account. You're going to get your online coaching going. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have all this shit on your website by tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, people don't like pre-orders. I was like, I was like you don't get it. I was like, nobody gives a fuck about your apparel. They give a fuck about you. And what you just told me on that show, people are going to want to support you. They don't care if you're selling fucking bathwater. They're going to buy it because you shared your darkest, deepest, most inner vulnerabilities and insecurities. And they're going to take that, learn from it, and they want to support you. And sure as shit, you know, I talked to them a week after and he's like, man, he's like, I just had the biggest month. You could take every month of last year, put it together, and it wouldn't be the month that I just had after your show. And I was like, fucking hey, man, keep it going. You know, but um, so to be able to do that, mm-hmm. you know, is a big responsibility. And and, and it's, it's a gift. And it's putting good into the world because Cody has a great message. He's a solid human. He's a good person. He's putting out things that are helping people. And really all I did was just give him a platform to tell everybody what he's doing, what he's been through and, and boom. And I've done that with, you know, a lot of people. Number of them. So that's what I get out of it. Anything else, you know, it's kind of icing on the cake. And, and, and I've always been a believer that if, if you, if you do good and you just, the money's going to be there, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think the money's just, it's just, it's going to be there. And it, for me, you know, business and money was there you know it took a while but that's what i get out of it what's up with the gummy bears the gummy <laughs> the gummy i think bears. i think the first um i haven't told you this yet uh, i think the first episode i ever saw is when he did a uh, dj shipley mm-hmm. and uh i didn't know who you were didn't know anything about it somehow youtube recommended it shout out to susan and the youtube team who uh you know great great recommendation algorithm <laughs> <laughs> and uh uh I clicked on it. I don't frankly don't even remember why. I don't remember what the title was, whatever. But like, I, I clicked on it, and uh, you had like a, a piece of the interview up front. I think I remember being like, "Oh shit, okay." And I saw th- it was like three hours. I'm like, "Oh fuck, I got like five minutes." Yeah. So I'm like, let me let me uh, save this one. And I remember uh, that night I sat down to go watch it, and uh, my wife was coming in and out of the room. And about 20 minutes in, she goes, what the fuck are you watching? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Sitting here listening to these two dudes talk, whatever. And, but I was hooked, right? And I was just like, okay, like this is going to be a great conversation. As I went further and further, I realized like, oh, this is uh, two guys who have very unique experiences in the world, but there's that high trust environment. They're going to talk about things in a way that just isn't going to be done elsewhere. And then, I don't know, a couple minutes into the interview or whatever, all of a sudden, it's a fucking ad. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool ad. Then I realized it was ads for your gummy bears. And I was like, what a fucking guy. He's got all these badass guys coming in, having these great conversations, but he's selling gummy bears. If I ever talk to him, I'm gonna ask him, what is up with the gummy bears? <laughs> <laughs> so what, where did the gummy bears come from? What? Why did you say, hey, we should go actually have a product with gummy bears? What? What is this? So it kind of started, so before I did the Sean Ryan show, I was teaching tactics, how to clear rooms, shooting mm-hmm. tactics, shit like that. And every time I enter a space, I like to research what what is happening in the space. So I started training 
started building social media and I was looking at what everybody else is doing. What are, excuse me, what are all my peers doing? Well, they're all acting like hard asses. They don't eat anything but protein shakes and chicken breasts. They never have any fun. They're always serious. You know, they look like an asshole. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do the exact fucking opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I'm a SEAL CIA guy. So people are already scared shitless of you just knowing that about you. Yes. So we have to disarm them if they actually want to learn anything. And so <clears throat> and, and and make yourself approachable and, and, and allow people to realize, oh, this guy's just a fucking human. Mm -hmm. And so how I did that is I started I when everybody else was posting their, their milkshakes that they're taking in the morning and their testosterone shots and their chicken breast, I was like, I like fucking donuts and milk duds and gummy bears and ice cream. And I'm a human. I like, I like candy. Sugar tastes know? good. <laughs> and, uh, and people like that, you know? And so, <clears throat> and I, I, so that's kind of how it started. And then, you know, I was just looking at people like, oh, well, you have to have apparel. You have to have products to sell. And so I was like, all right, well, I have sleep problems. Let's do CBD gummies mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll make a CBD gummy line and and uh, whatever. And my marketer was like, don't do that. You're going to get sued for marketing to kids. So I said, all right, fine. We'll just do regular gummy bears. And um, so I was like, all right, let's just order. A, let's find them, make them and market them and see what happens and Pop. just took off and uh just just regular gummy bears and so so it just stuck you know and then we ordered more and they sold out and then we ordered more and they sold out so now it's it's just like this staple of my business yeah and uh you obviously do a great job kind of integrating into the show and you get the ads and all that stuff. Um, is it something that you want to take and put into stores and, and kind of grow, you know, as if you were a candy company, I guess, or, uh, is it something that just like, no, we want to keep doing the content and have the conversations and that, and this is just, you know, a thing that is part of what we do. Uh, but it's not really going to be a, a massive focus. I would love to get something in, in stores, but I don't, yeah. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the product because, Nobody's going to go to Walmart and buy a ten a ten dollar bag of gummy bears when they can get three times the size of yeah. a different kind of gummy bears for three bucks. So it's a you know it's a novelty item and it's a way for for people that like what I'm doing to to support me. And so mm -hmm. I'll, I'll probably just keep that online, mm -hmm. you know. And as you think about uh, the content itself, one of the things I notice is uh, it's very high quality. Right. Um, it seems like you've been one very thoughtful, but to really focus on the quality, um, you've got the interviews, uh, do you have aspirations and, and kind of, uh, uh, plans to do things outside of just the interviews or like, how, how do you think about like other pieces of content? <clears throat> I started, I started doing a lot of, I spent a lot of time dabbling in different projects mm -hmm. and, and so everything from, going up to Alaska and doing like a quasi survival series to going down to Tijuana and doing a whole cartel, like kind of, kind of cartel border, Southern Mexico or Northern Mexico kind of, uh, newsy type content that most people won't do cause they're too scared to go get in those neighborhoods and do it. But <clears throat> where I'm going is, is, after the psychedelics, 
I decided it would be best to just concentrate on one thing and make that one thing really, really, really good. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've done. And, and I think I will just, I will continue to build this show up and, and instead of doing all these different types of content, getting more diverse guests is kind of where I'm headed. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy the conversations. Uh, and I always think about, um, conversations are only as good as the questions they ask. What's the research process like that, that you kind of go through and then how do you determine what are the questions you'll ask versus the things you're like, eh, I could ask, but not really something that either you're interested in or you think will be uh, valuable for the audience. I used to do, I used to do a ton of research. I think the DJ Shipley one, you had like a whole notebook full of questions. Yeah. It seemed. <laughs> yeah, I did. And, um, I used to do a ton of research and then I kind of just got into a groove and I got better to talking it, talking mm -hmm. with people. And so sometimes I'll just go in there with no plan at all. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those wind up being the best ones. Mm -hmm. But, um, and, and now I can do that with the operator type guests is I, I kind of know I have a flow. I know a little bit about them. You know, and it's easy to research because I can ask around about them. But I, I, I really hindered my business with research uh, early on. It was I put so much fucking pressure on myself to know everything about the guests that's coming on. I try to read every book they wrote. I try to, you know, do their online training programs. And it, it, it hindered my business. So I I was condensed it. And then if I can, I just shit can it, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. And. And what I go off of now is I just got really good at reading the guest. I know what they're willing to do. I know what they're not willing to do. And and I always push the limits with the questions. You know, I ask the questions that, that people don't want to ask. And, um, like, here's an example. I just interviewed – this hasn't come out yet, but I just interviewed this guy um, who in his childhood he had a, a peeping Tom for four years in his window. His parents didn't believe it. Then his dad became abusive and, uh, and, um, and I could, and he had been through a ton of shit in the military, um, Marsa guy. And he started standing up. He started, he didn't want to get into the abuse, uh, from his, from his father. And so normally people would just go, okay, well, he doesn't want to talk about it. Let's go on. We didn't want to talk about it. So I said, Hey, it doesn't appear to me that you don't want to talk about this because of what happened to you. It appears to me that you don't want to talk about this because you want to stand up for your fucking abuser. And I was like, all you're doing on this show is telling the audience what you experienced mm -hmm. and, and, and your interpretation of that experience. <clears throat> so my question is why the fuck are you standing up for the abuser? And questions like that, you know, we'll, it will just, it'll blow the interviewee out of the fucking water. They're mm -hmm. just like, shit, you know. Called me out. Yeah. And, and it turned into a really, really good conversation. Mm -hmm. But um, finding those kind of rabbit holes to go down, I, I've found is, 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 and there wouldn't, I wouldn't ever found out that he was, you know, abused as a child mm -hmm. had, and, and gone down that rabbit hole because it wasn't anywhere, you mm -hmm. know, and so, that's another thing with mine. People, they get in that interview room and they've seen a lot of the other episodes and they kind of know what they're in for now. So they're willing to go 
deeper. You only agree to show up yeah. if, uh, if you're going to have a conversation. Yeah. I, I enjoy talking to other people who do a lot of interviewing because uh, I find the conversations are uh, much more meaningful. Right. And um, I think I've come to the conclusion it's because they know how to ask questions. And they also uh, know that if you're going to ask the questions, you got to be willing to answer questions. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so like, I've got a couple of friends who will they'll ask me stuff and I'm like, eh, whatever. And they're like, no, 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 no. Hold on. <laughs> if you're going to ask other people questions, you got to answer them. And I'm like, yeah. okay, fair. Uh, so you got to be careful people don't weaponize it against you. Right. <laughs> um, the and last thing I want to talk about is just like, you've built this incredible audience. What have been some of the coolest moments for you? Like, most people would look at your life and be like, wow, it's amazing to be a Navy SEAL. It's amazing to work for the CIA. It's amazing to do all this stuff. But my guess is that you actually have like some pretty cool things that now you're like, I cannot believe this or that because the audience is made up of such diverse people. Uh, it's gotten so large. Like what, what are some of the cool moments that you've experienced there where you're just kind of like, I got to pinch myself because I can't believe this is real for somebody who's been through kind of what I've been through. Man, there's a lot. I will say I don't dwell on success much. Do you? No. I don't have time for it. It's my uh, maybe not biggest downfall or or like challenge, but uh, I also am not probably as good as I should be in terms of uh, giving people uh, positive feedback. Like – I kind of more focus on the negative feedback of yep. just like like the positive shit is the expectation, yeah. Uh, which I think is, <laughs> which is I like of, that too. Yeah, yeah, I think it's kind of a uh, if you're into the military or that whole world, I th- it's not a lot of guys walking around being like good job. There's yeah. a lot of people being like you're fucking up, um, yeah. and so uh, I've tried to get better at it, uh, but um, yeah, the successes are just kind of yeah, know, just like what's the what's next? next? Yeah, I'm I'm like that too. Uh, some of the things that stick out. I guess the Eric Prince interview was awesome. Yeah. You know, just to to have somebody like that sitting in front of you with the circles that that guy runs in, it's like, holy shit. And the knowledge that he's, I mean, I don't think half of America can even comprehend what was coming out of his mouth. No. And and, uh, just... I told you this beforehand, but it's important to me that I say it on here. That interview specifically, I think is in the last for sure year, maybe a couple of years, it's probably my most shared interview in the sense of like, after I listened to it, I sent it to a bunch of people. Half of them were like, pop, you're crazy. Like stop sending me this shit. Right. <laughs> and just like, who the fuck is Eric Prince? And the other half of people were like, what? Yeah. Right? And, uh, uh, the first half is interesting. If you understand Blackwater and a lot of the controversy and, and things that they went through, the second half was kind of like, the world is fucked, right? It was kind of like one of the takeaways. Um, and so I highly suggest people listen to it. But uh, that one for you felt like that was a kind of a trophy that you were able to, uh, to have that conversation. Yeah. And then another one would be the, the what led to that interview was the Blackwater guys. And mm-hmm. uh, this is, that's probably my favorite one. Um, there was back in 2007, I don't know if you remember, there was a mm-hmm. big shootout in Nassau Square. Square in Baghdad. Uh, Obama, Biden administration railroaded those gents. Uh, three of them were in for 30 years. One was in for life. They, they deleted the ev- evidence. They deleted the drone footage. That, whatever. They got railroaded. If you want to know the ins and outs, there's an interview out there. I'm the only one to ever get those four guys in the same room to tell their side of what happened that day. And uh, with the the liberal news reporter who actually brought this to Trump, which led to their pardons. Uh, 
that was, and to see like, to see those guys get to open up about that day because they've the media never gave them the fucking opportunity to tell their side. It was just railroad these. Obama wants these guys railroaded, fucking railroad them. They never gave them the time of day. So to see like the peace come over them after that interview, like we got our, we got to tell the world, you know, mm-hmm. what, what really happened that day, our side of it. And well, their side was not helpful for the public narrative. No. Right. And I think that we're seeing that, uh, across the mainstream media over and over and over again. Uh, social media changed that shows like yours have changed that where, uh, now people have a voice. It does make you think, damn, how many, you know, stories of history, if we got the other side. Yeah. Again, not necessarily meaning that the other side is 100% accurate either, but like maybe we would just kind of be in the middle and yeah. say like, oh, this is more complex than either side wants us to understand. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it, it is fascinating to, to realize like these guys went all the way, including jail, and then got to tell their story. Yeah. Tried yeah. three times. They yeah. tried them three times. And uh, to, they, they just weren't going to stop until they got a guilty verdict. And and um but are they mad those guys man you know i think they're at peace yeah you know i think sitting in prison for seven years i think it was you know they it i think it gave them it's something that you know i can't ever comprehend but i think that just gave them a new appreciation uh you know for for being free Mm -hmm. you know and 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 they're just really appreciative of it. You know, one guy, Nick Slatton, he won't, I don't think that guy will ever leave his town again. Uh, he lives in a small town in Tennessee, but you know, Paul, he's one of them. He's out public speaking now, which is just, I mean, did from what they have been through to be able to come out in the public and that's just phenomenal, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so, so the biggest wins for me, you know, it's, it's watching the success that I can help bring other people, mm-hmm. you know, is, is the real, that's what makes me feel the best. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, yeah, the business wins and stuff like that. That's always cool. But, um, you know, I think we're very similar. It's, mm-hmm. we don't celebrate the successes. Who the hell are you going to celebrate them with anyways? Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to look at it. Uh, where can we send people to find you on the internet or find more of the show? Uh, just, Sean Ryan show, Sean Ryan show.com. Sean Ryan shows all the social media handles. And then my personal stuff, Sean Ryan, seven, six, two. Awesome. Well, listen, I really appreciate you coming and doing this. Uh, I've learned a lot from the show uh, and I really enjoyed talking today and we'll definitely do it again in the future. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to transition into a brand new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to thecryptoacademy.io. My team and I have been working with the top HR teams in the industry to develop an intensive three-week training program with over 50 live events. We teach you exactly what you need to know to break into the industry, including live interview prep and resume review. Our students have been hired at over 75 of the world's best Bitcoin and crypto companies. Go to thecryptoacademy.io to learn more. Again, that's thecryptoacademy.io. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with your friends and I'll see you all for the next episode.